Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I don't know about you, but I've probably worn shorts more in 2020 than any other year of my life. Sitting on all those video calls, you only have to be business dress code from the shoulders up, and you can be all casual below. If you want to use that work-from-home freedom to represent your favorite band, Section 119 has the high-quality Grateful Dead gear you need. Check out their board shorts, designed around steelies, lightning bolts, terrapin turtles, or the skull and roses skeleton. Or maybe you'd like their shirts and polos, which have subtle designs for that professional deadhead look on a Zoom meeting. And there's much more. Blazers, wallets, socks... I recently bought some bandanas on Section 119 myself to keep my quarantine hair in check, and they've been great. Really well made, washable, with a design that draws compliments from jam fans and normal people alike. So swing by Section119.com, that's Section119.com, enter the code 36 from the vaults upon checkout, and you'll get 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's Section119.com. Hey folks, just like Bobby hates rain, I hate my lawn. I've got patchy grass, tons of weeds, and I hate spending precious free time taking care of it. So I'm very interested in Sinlon. Sinlon is the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass in North America. They make safe, clean, environmentally friendly turf. No watering, no pesticides, no mowing. Their artificial grass is made from bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugarcane and it's made right here in the USA. Sinlon sent us a couple samples, which is a funny thing to get in the mail, but it looks and feels crazy realistic, and the kids love jumping on it. I can see how it would work great for a lawn, a playground, a patio, or anywhere else you might need some low-maintenance greenery. For instance, right now, Sinlon is running a contest to win their Dave Pell's Greenmaker Putting Green System, so you can enjoy pro-quality putting in your home or office. Go to Sinlon, S-Y-N-L-A-W-N dot com 
slash 36FTV. Check out their products and enter the contest by August 31st. That's sinlon.com slash 36FTV. All right, so Steve, uh, you know, at the at the time of this recording, you just celebrated a birthday, but uh, more importantly, you're about to celebrate a uh, a new arrival, uh, uh, somebody else's birthday or something else's birthday. Can I just say, like, I really feel like we're in a band right now because you are. It's like you're setting me up to play a guitar solo here. You know, <laughs> you're so you're such a generous bandmate. Yes, I have a book coming out. I guess about a week, probably or so. After this episode drops, it's on September 29th. It's called This Isn't Happening. Uh, Radiohead's Kid A in the Beginning of the 21st Century. I almost forgot the subtitle of the book. <laughs> I'm still early in the promo cycle uh, for this book. But yeah, it's- we're testing it out on our, our, on our listeners. <laughs> right. So yeah, you know, I thought I want to plug the book on our podcast and it feels like the tuning segment is the way to go as people are sort of filing into their seats we're not going to uh hopefully feel like people are being given the hard sell too much but yeah i wrote a book about radiohead i'm I'm curious about like what the overlap is in our audience between like grateful dead fans and and radiohead fans i think there's probably some yeah yeah i mean i would say you know there's uh you know, probably a surprising amount of similarities between Radiohead and the Dead. Uh, if you really, you know, give it some thought, like, you know, these are two bands, you know, obviously, you know, musically, maybe they don't overlap a whole lot, but definitely bands that are very iconoclastic, right? Like they've set their own path through the music world. And, uh, you know, in recent years, it seems like Radiohead's gotten a little, I don't know if they've gotten jammy, but they've certainly had some interactions with the jam world, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, it's weird because at the beginning of the 2010s, they started performing with two drummers on stage, sure. which I feel like you are on your way to being a jam band once you, once you <laughs> add the second drummer. It's uh, an essential ingredient for sure, yeah. And um, both of their drummers are bald, too. So, I, I you know, that's very in keeping with Radiohead, you know. It, it would be cool, though, if, like, the second drummer they hired looked, looked like Mickey, you know? like if, <laughs> With a stash. Exactly. He was, like, a guy with a big red, like, with a big black mustache and, uh, you know, like, like a black mullet, you know, and, like, a bandana on. Like, you know, like, 1969 Mickey. Like, playing, like, one drum. Right. Uh, that would have been pretty radical. But, no, they hired another bald guy, which is, you know, in terms of their visual aesthetic, it is probably more in keeping with what they do. But yeah, you know, it's it's always fun on this show. Obviously, we're talking about the Grateful Dead a lot, and we we do that because we love the Grateful Dead, and we love talking about Dick's picks. But you know, occasionally we do like to talk about other bands, and yeah. and to sort of look at the Dead through the lens of that band, like a very prominent band. Of course, we did that in our first season with Fish, mm-hmm. um, and. We called it our curveball episode, and I mean, I think we're going to do another curveball episode this season at some point. Yeah, uh, wink, wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of similarities between Dead and Radiohead. Maybe we should uh, discuss this further sometime. Yeah, or not. Uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. <laughs> We've got a big episode in front of us. By the way, this is thirty-six from the vault, presented by Osiris. 
Yes, our uh, two men's proud journey through the 36-volume collection of Grateful Dead live albums selected by the dearly departed Dick Ludfala. Look at you, too. I like how you're sort of recapping the show right there. Well, you, yeah, you like inspired me with your fancy subtitle for your Radiohead <laughs> book. But I was like, we need a fancy subtitle, too. The 36 from the vault's just not not uh, sufficing anymore. I was going to say, like, I love, okay, you know, because I have done a couple interviews for this book already, and I feel like, you know, I've written a couple books now. I think I'm pretty smooth in interview situations, but, like, I get into the 36 from the vault, like, mindset. I get into the dead world, and any sense of professionalism just falls away. And, like, and like, <laughs> and like I can't remember the subtitle of the book, you know, and I'm, and I'm just screwing up left and right. But I feel like... Well, speaking of... Uh, oh, go ahead. I was just saying, it's, it's more authentic. I feel like it's more real, and, and hopefully our audience will appreciate my uh my stumbling over the book title and and not right. and not take it as just like oh this guy has no idea what he's talking about he can't even remember the name <laughs> of his goddamn book yeah it could go either way on there i'm hoping it's it, it's the former and not the latter so steve an important question uh i'm not sure how you count your uh discography here or i don't know what do you what do you call it? bibliography i guess uh, no let's call it discography it sounds cooler okay, we'll call it it's cooler yeah, yeah. Uh, do you consider this your your fourth book or your third book? My fourth, yeah. I count because okay. so my third book was a co-write with my friend Steve Gorman. It was a book about the Black Crows, who are another band that are like, uh, I mean, they're much more jam adjacent than Radiohead is. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever talk about the Black Crows on here, but maybe we will. I don't know. There's probably some Black Crows <laughs> fans out there. If you wink, wink, maybe, yeah, <laughs> more winks. And like, do you have any? familiarity with the black crows or like very kind of probably passing familiarity i'm guessing yeah yeah just you know the hits and uh knowing that they were also a a band that sort of grew into the jam band scene exactly and you know they they actually did cross paths with the dead as well like you know i know chris robinson the lead singer of the band knew the band you knew jerry when he was alive he actually did some shows with phil lesh so there's a much actually more obvious connection between the Crows and Grateful Dead. But anyway, I, I digress. That was the third book I worked on, and I do count that as a as a full-fledged book because I, I worked hard on that. So I, oh, I'm sure. taking it. So, But yeah, like I've written three books by myself. One was a co-write. So, yes. In the, and just a, a follow-up question. Yes. Uh, so would you consider it your Live Dead, which is the fourth <laughs> official album that the Grateful Dead released, or your Working Man's Dead, which would be the fourth studio album that the Dead released? You know, I think of it as like Working Man's Dead, probably just because I don't, you know, as an author, it's hard to liken anything you do to like a live record. You know, unless I was like typing this on stage with an audience, and then I, and I probably, you know, I handed them a copy of it at the end of the night. Um, but no, yeah, this is like, in a way, it's just like Working Man's Dead with the Dead. You know, that was like the Dead getting back to basics. That was them getting into their roots. And in a way, exactly. that's what this book is like for me. Because I'm uh, I'm writing about this band that I have listened to since I was, you know, what, like 15 years old. So uh, there's a lot of history I have with this band. And unlike this show and unlike some of the other books I've I, I've written... You know, I have firsthand knowledge of this band. Like I've I've been alive during their entire existence, so it's interesting. It's great going back to the dead and talking about shows that were before our time. But it's obviously a much different experience when 
uh, you know, you were an eyewitness in a way to right. a band's trajectory. So both are a little valid. more secondhand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, All right, I'm putting a stop to uh, book plug corner. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, th- and I'm going to make a segue here that I think is fairly smooth. You know, talking oh, about shows that occurred before I was born, we're going to be talking about Dick's Picks 15 today which is uh, Englishtown, New Jersey, of course, September 3rd, 1977. This occurred four days before I was born. So yeah. um, wasn't around for this show, but almost was around. And I I think I said this in a previous episode, I'd like to think that I heard the vibrations from Englishtown. Right. <laughs> in, in utero. In my mom's womb, some thousand or two thousand miles away in, in the middle right. of Wisconsin. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we mentioned earlier that uh, all professionality goes out the window on the Grateful Dead podcast. So, you know, uh, a a well-planned out podcast would have had this episode ready for Labor Day weekend (laughs) for all of you to listen to, uh, you know, 43 years after Labor Day weekend 1977. But instead... Steve and I listened to it all Labor Day weekend and recorded it at the end of Labor Day weekend. Yeah, so it, we are we're still in the Labor Day weekend uh, vibe here. You're just gonna have to recreate it at home in two weeks. I mean, it was great for us. You know, yeah. we got to listen we, to we it, it on the on the anniversary. The listener, you know, it's not as much fun for them. But I feel like that's that that's true of all of our episodes. You know, <laughs> it's about you and I indulging our ourselves and people. You know, if they enjoy it, that that that's great. But yeah. It's a perk. It's a bonus. <laughs> it's a purely selfish endeavor for us. <laughs> but, you know, but you know, all kidding aside, you know, I imagine a lot of people listening to this podcast, they probably, um, you know, if they're if they're listening to our episodes in real time as we're putting them out, I imagine that a lot of you probably listen to English Town on Labor Day weekend. So mm-hmm. you've already done your homework. You've had a couple weeks to digest it, and and hopefully you saw this episode as another opportunity to revisit it again, you know, a couple weeks later. And of course, there's some of you who, you know, might be listening to this episode five years from now. And, uh, yeah. you know, so who knows? I think yeah. I think we're producing some evergreen content here for the people. <laughs> so, it <doesn't, laughs> exactly. so it's not in real time. It, it doesn't matter. It's always Labor Day. It's always Labor Day for a deadhead. Absolutely. So, to, to, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, so, yeah, this album came out. Uh, October 18th, 1999, and as we discussed in our previous episode, Dick's Picks 14 was the last uh, album, sadly, that that Dick had a part of before he passed away. Uh, That was in August of 1999, so this was the first post-Dick album. Do we know, like, did Dick, I mean, this is, like, an iconic record anyway, so it wouldn't have been, like, you know, Dick wouldn't have had to dig it out necessarily out of a vault for people to know about it. But like, did he have a any say in this being picked? Yeah, it sounds like I I didn't find exactly what the story was on this, and we'll do some more digging before the next one too. But uh, as, as far as I'm aware, what I read was that he had selected the next two volumes, and I don't know how far in advance they had to do work on these things in order to get them out to the CD store in time. Uh, but this one, you know, comes out only you know two months after he died so i i have to imagine it was already in the pipeline uh when he passed away so the 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 official story goes that he selected this one uh which as you say is you know a pretty obvious choice uh but then the next one as well which is a little more interesting and obscure so uh the dead organization decided to do right by dick and uh finish off these last two that he chose and then with volume 17 uh it was taken over by david lemieux Ah. who is uh still running 
the operation today. But yeah, so this Dix Picks 15, they did have time to at least put in a little message in the uh, liner notes. Yeah. And, uh, I'll, I'll give it a quick reading here. It says, <laughs> People of Earth, greetings, greetings from the great, great beyond. beyond. I am contacting you at this time to assure you that all is well and to let you know that Dixpix shall continue in my absence just as before. My plans for future releases are well known to my teammates, and they have sworn with their blood to remain true to the cause. I hope this release will alleviate any doubts concerning my posthumous powers. And it's signed, The Archivist, formerly known as Dick. As listeners of this show know, I am the CD listener out of the out of the two of us. I collect the CDs and I listen to the CDs when I'm digging into Dick's picks because I'm just that kind of purist when it comes to DPs. And I remember opening the booklet and seeing that message. And it was actually like pretty touching. You know, it's like, you know, I I mean, he didn't actually write that, probably, I'm guessing. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure someone else wrote it, but it was like, I still, it was nice that um it was acknowledged in some in some fashion you know that this yeah. was uh going to be for him and and he his spirit is still alive uh on this record and and there's a is there a picture of him in there as well uh let me uh i have it right here i uh, yep he's right here yep mm-hmm. he's wearing is it like under the tray or is it on the booklet it's on the booklet it's like uh, you know okay. it's the there's a there's a photo of him and then like opposite him is the like a, a shot of the crowd at english town and uh oh, nice. looks like dick looks like dick is wearing a new riders of the purple sage t-shirt <laughs> appropriate and yeah. uh, he's wearing some like pretty bitchin looking like white headphones and nice. yeah it looks like it's probably a photo like you know from the 70s looking mm-hmm. Looking pretty sweet, as I'm sure he would Young want to be remembered. So, another shout out to Dick. You know, we were uh, we poured one out for him last episode. We like, you know, burned one or emptied the bowl <laughs> for him. Whatever you want to do, <laughs> do it again. You know, let's let's hoist another one for Dick uh, right. here at English Town. We'll, we'll do it for the next 21 episodes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. This is like an extended wake for Dick. Um, and again, you know, we. Yeah, we we alluded to this earlier. This is an iconic show for the Grateful Dead, and um, we'll get into why that is. And I think it's fair to say that, uh, along with the quality of the show or whatever quality you want to describe for this, I'm trying to be vague. I don't want to say too much about how we feel about this album yet. <laughs> but isn't it fair to say that like the uh, the status of the show has as much to do with the circumstances of the gig as like the music itself? I mean, it was like an enormous show. Oh, maybe like one of the biggest shows they ever played. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's uh, 
it's one of these legendary shows in dead history. I believe in the So Many Roads book, it's uh, one of the chapters. So the way you know David Brown organized that book, it's uh, it you know he he picked sort of these iconic shows in Grateful Dead history, and that stands in for the 1977 chapter. So that tells you how big of a deal it was. Uh, yeah, it was just yeah, not not Cornell. It was this show, yeah. not the Cornell show. There's a lot... I guess because Cornell didn't happen. Maybe that confirms. It was the CIA. That, that was... Yes, of course. Yeah, as exactly. we all know. But, <laughs> but there were too many people at this show to, you know, we, we know for sure it happened because yeah. there's just so many eyewitnesses. Cornell, on the other hand, yeah, doubtful that that actually happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's like if you look back, this is. Uh, you know, one of the biggest shows they ever played. I mean, they played at Woodstock, of course, which had more people, and they they played horribly at Woodstock. And they were also, you know, just one band of you know fifty or whatever that was on the bill for that. Uh, but this is, you know, the Grateful Dead headlining their own gig. They threw it together, uh, you know, themselves with uh, you know help from a, a figure we'll talk about soon. But yeah, you know, depending on who you trust uh, for the numbers, uh, they sold about a hundred. 5,000 tickets, I believe. Uh, yeah. But a lot of people think that there was something closer to 150,000 people there. Uh, whether they all paid or not is up for debate. But uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the, it was the biggest concert in New Jersey history. Uh, it probably still is. I don't know if anything has beat it. Uh, Springsteen never did some big uh, outdoor free New Jersey thing or something. I would imagine that would be the only thing in contention. But uh, Yeah, I mean, like if you, like, you'd have to like stack like stadium shows that he did. You know, on over like you know consecutive consecutive night runs or something yeah. to get close to like what this crowd was. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, you mentioned Woodstock, like the Watkins Glen. I think I've oh, seen sure, that as being like that's probably the like biggest six hundred six hundred thousand. But that was like them and the Allman Brothers in the band. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like a triple bill. And um, again, going back to what you were saying, I mean, there were other bands on. The English Town Bill. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about them. Like you had the Marshall Tucker Marshall Tucker Band, and you had uh, New Riders of the Purple Sage, of course, riding shotgun as they often did. <laughs> but like the Grateful Dead were the main attraction, mm-hmm. and um, and when you read books about the Dead and they talk about this show, they do. T- they, I, I think people look at it as a landmark because of the amount of people that showed up, and also. I think it really confirmed to the band and also like the music industry, like what kind of draw this band really had. Yeah. Because there aren't many bands that can draw that many fans, especially like considering that the dead were coming off Terrapin Station, which came out in July and wasn't like a terribly like well-received record by fans. It wasn't like that was a big hit album and people were coming out to hear singles or something mm-hmm. as as you would expect for like some other act that would draw that many people it was like people are going to come because it's the dead right and it was really i think yeah like one of the like really big examples of like wow like most bands can't do this i i think it's in so many roads like they're like one of their business managers is quoted as saying like you know, like the Almond Brothers are big, but like they're not as big as this, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, so it really was like a milestone, I think, in that regard, in terms of like how people thought of this band. Yeah, from this point on, they were the Grateful Dead. Like they, they had, I think, solidified this brand as like this is going to be a huge live touring act, uh, no matter what you know record sales they have like people will just come see the dead (laughs) like no matter what they're doing uh and it you know it bore out for the they had some low points in the 80s as we've talked about but they were pretty much like a reliable money maker from here uh 
from 1977 through 1995 and you know post jerry as well so this is sort of a uh yeah like a power statement <laughs> like we can and, we can throw a big party and and you know over 100,000 people are going to come and you know i imagine that we'll talk a lot about this as we get into the meat of the show but you know i feel like with english town um you know there's other 77 shows that you can compare this to that we remember you know we've already alluded to to uh, Cornell as being a big 77 show. I think it's natural to compare what the dead did here to that show. There's also like, you know, things like Dick's picks 10, Mm -hmm. you know, that we talked about earlier. That was the show um, from December of, of, of 77. I think that was like their last show of the year. I don't, did they play a new year's Eve show? They did. That was part of the new year's run. Okay. So it was part of the new year's run. Um, There's Dick's picks three too. We heard, which was May 22nd. So yeah. I'm, yeah, and, you know, and we've talked about this. I mean, 77 uh, is, you know, if it's not the most documented year in Dead History, it is among the most documented years. I mean, May 77 alone, I mean, pretty much every show they played that month has been officially released. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we've heard a lot of 77 so far um, in our Dick's Picks run here. And I got to say, and again, I keep feeling like I'm going to tip my hand too much. My feelings about 77 have changed a little mm-hmm. over the course of doing Dick's Picks. Um, and I'm not sure how you feel about that. And you probably don't want to tip your hand either. But <laughs> I, I feel like I felt one way about 77 at the beginning of this series. I'm feeling like a little bit different about it mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. Well, I think um, I think part of the reputation of this show, too, uh, is that it you know, besides Cornell, which every deadhead uh, had a copy of, uh, this is probably the number two seventy-seven show for a long time. Like the number, the second most common Grateful Dead tape from nineteen seventy-seven, uh, because it was a the concert was broadcast live on what is it WNEW FM in Jersey. Uh, so you know, whenever there's an FM copy of a show out there, it tends to spread uh, because it was a, a rare soundboard pre Dix picks. Uh, so I think. You know, this show had a lot to do with shaping people's perceptions of 77, maybe not as much as Cornell. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of interesting because it, it has these, you could kind of think of the, like the before, back in the days when, you know, it was harder to come by dead shows, Cornell and English Town were like the twin towers of 1977 for deadheads. And so the, the similarities and differences with Cornell are there's something I want to dig into here because you can hear a very different band uh, between May and September of this very important year in dead history. And, you know, the, the places where it's similar, though, I, I, I hear what you're saying, like 77. I think it, it sounds really good. I, I, I'm not going to bash 77, but it, it, it's got a little bit more of like a almost like controlled goodness about it <laughs> like oh man it, it, it's like the peak of dead professionalism uh which can i just say like when you said i'm not gonna bash 77 yeah. like half of our list like half of our listeners just like a huge spit <laughs> when you said that yeah to even like suggest it yeah and and maybe i was sort of like implying that maybe i'm gonna like rip 77 i'm not gonna rip 77 no. and i actually really like this show i'll say that right now i guess after all the hand tipping conversation i'm like tipping my hand full bore here <laughs> because to me it's like 
I, we're going to be talking about Cornell and 77 in comparison to this show, but I also feel like Dick's Picks 10 mm-hmm. is like on the other side yeah. because there's there's certain things about 10 that I had issues with that like aren't true about this show. Mm-hmm. And there's some similarities to Cornell 77, but there's actually some things I kind of like about this gig that that one doesn't have in a way and this i'm gonna t- i'm gonna borrow one of your phrases that you like to say on the show but in a way this feels like a little like a goldilocks show to me mm-hmm. um between like some of the the strengths and the excesses i guess of 77 dead um the other thing too i should like warn people right away like if you haven't if, if you've seen that movie whiplash yeah you know like with uh about the drummer like jk simmons is the like crazy drum teacher yeah. I feel like a little like J.K. Simmons uh, <laughs> listening to this album and listening to seven, 77 Dead because some of my quibbles are like not my tempo type uh, quibbles. And in this show in particular, there's like one big example of like a pretty train wrecky rhythm section in, in my opinion. <laughs> but there's also other things that like I actually really like and uh, it has something to do with like I think a big narrative of this show, which is... Mickey Hart coming back from his car accident and how in a way this isn't one drummer dead but it's like one and a half drummer yeah yeah it's like uh yeah just to to give a little historical context for people that haven't read several Grateful Dead biographies uh so the Grateful Dead they're flying high in May they had recorded Terrapin Station but it hadn't come out yet and as we sort of hinted at I believe way back in the Dick's Picks 3 volume uh they worked on Terrapin Station with Keith Olsen, who was known as a, the producer of the first Fleetwood Mac self-titled album. Uh, and he made them practice and rehearse, which were two, you know, you know, uh, swear words to the Grateful Dead. <laughs> and so a lot of the reason why May 77 is so great is because they were never, I think, tighter in their entire history than they were in May 77. The drummers are totally on point. The whole band seems like just like a well-oiled machine. And they turned out some really great shows. They were about to hit like a big summer tour in 1977. Terrapin Station came out in July. They were going to be promoting the album, playing all these great shows around the country. Uh, and then Mickey crashed his porch. He basically, or his, his porch, his Porsche uh, sports car. Uh, uh, he didn't crash into a porch, but he did like fly off a sort of mountain pass up to his house, uh, down a ravine into some trees. And it sounds like a pretty gnarly accident. Like they said he broke his collarbone, broke his shoulder, broke some ribs, almost sliced his ear off completely. Uh, so not quite, you know, like a you know, death store type of injuries, but still something really, you know, painful to experience and really bad to come back from as a drummer, right? I mean, what what could be yeah, worse than hurting your shoulder uh, and collarbone? And I have to say, t- and too, like, I mean, like, you think about, like, Rex Jackson, like the famous Grateful Dead roadie who had died in a car accident. Yeah. I think it was in September of 76. And uh, we should say, I don't know if we actually said this, but this show was recorded by the great Betty Cantor Jackson, mm-hmm. his widow, who like continued to, you know, work for the band even after Rex died. And of course, she's a big part of the mythology of 77 just because her recordings sound amazing. I think that she is the best recordist uh, that worked with the dead. Like, I, I just love the Betty board so much. So buttery, as I say, and this show sounds really great. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Rex Jackson dies in a car accident. And then Mickey Hart, 
has a terrible car accident, you know, like months later, essentially, I guess, you know, about six, seven, eight months later. Mm. And yeah, it just derails the dead. They can't tour in the summer. We've brought up this possibility, and I'm sure many people have, about like, why didn't they, why didn't they just do One Drummer Dead in the summer? Uh, and I guess it was like, out of respect for Mickey, mm-hmm. they were like, well, he's in a hospital bed with many broken bones. Maybe it wouldn't be cool for us to tour without him. Yeah. But they could have, obviously, because you know, we all love One Drummer mm-hmm. Dead. It would have been... It's a, it's an intriguing alternative you know alternative history type thing, right? And you brought up too uh, that you know the bios talk about this though in in, in a lot less detail. Uh, but Donna also had a surgical procedure in the summer. I don't know if she's ever said what it was, and I respect yeah, her like privacy. A... <laughs> that, like she doesn't want it; she doesn't have to reveal everything to us, you know, cruel deadheads. Uh, but uh, yeah, so she was also, you know, sort of on the mend. Uh, so for, for the show in particular, Mickey is basically playing with one arm. Uh, yeah. And then Donna is, if you look at pictures, kind of perched on like a bar stool over yeah. in the corner of the stage. And she's talked about how it was a really difficult show for her as well. Mickey talks about how it's the hardest show he ever played in his life uh, because he was coming back from these injuries uh, straight into, you know, 150,000 people, uh, one of the biggest shows they'd ever played. So uh, we're, we're yeah, talking like, about a, a, a dead with some people, you know, fresh off the disabled list here. Yeah, like Mickey, his quotes about it, which, I, you know, is understandable. Like he's like called this show stale. You know, he said he was basically saying like, you know, we were just trying to get through it and we survived it. And which doesn't really translate when you listen to the record. I, I, I got to say that uh, it doesn't really sound stale to me, but I understand why it would feel that way from his perspective, just because he's not putting all the mustard on the hot dog that <laughs> Mickey Hart likes to put on the hot dog. <laughs> and, you know, from a Mickey Hart perspective, yeah, that would mean that the show's probably boring, you know, mm-hmm. like he's, he wasn't feeling it. But for us as listeners, out of, you know, all due respect to Mickey, him being hurt, I, I'm sad that he was hurt at this show. But like, uh, I feel like there, there are moments where I appreciate that he had to lay back a little yeah. bit. You know, I'll just put it that way well, at this point. I think, yeah, putting... I think maybe Mickey puts too much mustard on the hot dog in general, and yeah. I think a oh, lot he's of, slathering it on. Yeah, man. I think a lot of he's slathering on the mustard. Agree that he is a bit of an over uh, seasoner, an over condiment, or <laughs> I don't know how to <laughs> phrase it in that metaphor. But yeah, there's there's something appealing about having half a Mickey instead of a full Mickey, <laughs> um, and I think you know there's parts of it that work you know very well in this show, and I'll try and point those out as we go along. But yeah, you're right. One and a half drummer dead is probably the way to phrase it. The other sort of famous one and a half drummer dead is the Egypt shows, uh, which uh, I think Bill fell off a horse <laughs> like right after they got to Egypt. Uh, and if you watched the uh, one of the last shakedown streams, the dead did, they showed one of the Egypt shows and Bill is basically like cradling a broken wrist the entire concert. So uh, that one and a half drummer dead show uh, maybe did not work out so well. So it's an, it's important which half you lose, I think, in the one and a half drummer dead. I mean, like, was the idea here that this show was just too big to back out of in terms of being a payday? I mean, because my understanding of this show is that it was essentially like a traditional show. At, uh, I mean, did they always do shows at English Town, like a like Labor Day weekend? Well, it wasn't quite English Town, but it does seem to be like there was sort of an unofficial East Coast Grateful Dead show at the end of the summer because they did a bunch of shows, well, like a handful of shows at Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City. 
that would normally fall sort of August, September. Uh, and those were mostly pre-hiatus. And then, uh, so at this time, we'll, we'll introduce uh, John Shearer, who is uh, a major character in the English Town story. And he had kind of become their East Coast promoter because Bill Graham, of course, had the West Coast half of the dead. Uh, but he kind of became their New York guy. And it seems like he was really trying, he's one of the people that was really trying to prove that the dead were a big act, right? And why they set up this big giant show. So he wanted to plan this big show and, you know, put it at uh, Raceway Park in Englishtown, New Jersey this year. After this, they would do shows that the, the next year, at least, they did a Labor Day show at Giant Stadium, which I think is sort of the successor to this event um after that i think it kind of falls apart but in the 70s at least it does seem like they found themselves out east uh most of the time at the end of the summer and kind of played a big end of summer gig to celebrate and like another thing about share which by the way have i have i talked about my john share connection because well, i've like spent you've talked to i've him, spent right? time with john share okay yeah, yeah. well well because he was one of the organizers of woodstock 99 so i i did a uh, a big podcast investigative report series that ran last year on Woodstock 99 and I like spent a couple hours with John Cher I did follow-up interviews with him I gotta say kind of a slimy guy (laughs) and uh we'll we'll get more into that later on but he does have a a pretty illustrious history in the rock promotion business he's not nearly as famous as Bill Graham but as you said what Bill Graham was doing on the west coast John Cher was doing on the East Coast. I mean, Bill Graham, of course, was on the East Coast at the Fillmore East uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. But John Cher, uh, along with doing these mammoth shows that eventually did graduate to stadiums in the 80s, like he was doing the, the Dead Stadium shows, he was doing Bruce Springsteen Stadium shows in the 80s. One of the like big kind of people to midwife rock acts into into those big stadium shows in the 80s. He also ran the Capitol Theater in in New Jersey, okay. which if you are on YouTube, uh you can go on there. There's like lots of black and white videos from shows at the Capitol in the 1970s including uh a fair number of like Grateful Dead and I think especially Jerry Garcia shows, like Jerry Garcia band sure. shows. But there's also like a very famous Bruce Springsteen show uh from 1978. Uh, the Passaic, New Jersey show. If you're if you're a Bruce fan, you know that gig. John Cher did that show. So he's like a pretty big guy, and he has a vocal role on this album that we will talk about when we talk <laughs> about the record. Uh, but yeah, he's he's like the uh, the the nerdier, like more wormy Bill Graham. Yeah. You know, like the less celebrated you know, Bill Graham uh, and Bill Graham. Thank goodness never had Woodstock 99 yeah. uh, on his resume. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, we've talked to, you know, quite a bit about, um, you know, what, what the dead were going through at this time in 1977. And, you know, unlike a lot of our episodes, I mean, we've, we've covered 77 pretty thoroughly. So there's not as much, I guess, preamble for this show that we haven't already covered. Right. If you're If you're somehow, like, joining our show with this episode, I recommend checking out some of our other 77 episodes if you're if you're curious for more background uh, on 77 Dead. But for those of you who have followed us religiously <laughs> up to this point, we'll spare you, you know, sort of reiterating that information. Uh, so maybe we should just set up the scene. Sure. What was going on in pop culture at this time. Yep. As I said, 
the biggest event was that I was born <laughs> four days after this show. Number one Future, on the baby charts, Steve Idle. Yes. <laughs> Future 36 from the vault uh, chronicler uh, was born four days after this show. The number one song in America, and I think we've talked about this already because we've talked about other shows around this time, yeah. but it was Best of My Love by The Emotions, mm-hmm. um, which if you've seen Boogie Nights, you know that song. It's the song that opens the movie. Yeah. Like that. A uh, great pan shot that, like that tracking shot that just follows all the characters at the beginning. Right, and it's good to uh, have it song. back because, like, I think Boogie Nights, the 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 whole world it portrays, feels very much of a piece with this show <laughs> and the dead in nineteen seventy seven. Like maybe, you know, obviously they weren't in uh, the valley or whatever shooting porn videos. Though maybe I don't know. What did Bobby do all summer? Do we know? Well, <laughs> it's not the Boogie Nights world, but it's definitely the Saturday Night Fever world. Oh, sure. Like Saturday Night Fever is like Brooklyn, I That's guess. That's right, but, yeah. you know, you can imagine that if, um, you know, Tony Manero, John Travolta's character in Saturday Night Fever, if he had like a different group of friends, mm-hmm. instead of going to discos, they might have been going to, you know, dead shows in 77. Exactly. Or maybe, you know, there were probably a lot of fans that were doing both, right? I mean, it's... Uh, yeah. It's possible. People who yeah. just like doing drugs, they probably went to the, <laughs> the you know, disco and the dead went hand in hand. Uh, it's, That's uh, true. Everyone was doing blow in '77, <laughs> exactly. so it wasn't like it wasn't as much. It wasn't like weed and acid probably as much. Although I'm sure there was some of that yeah. going on in, in the dead audience, but in the band, definitely getting into the snow right. at this time. They, uh, um, yeah. the, the people went where the blow was, I think, in 1977. So maybe there was a, that, that's a fraction of the 150,000 people in English town, I'm sure. So like the, uh, the rest of the top 10 this week is actually like kind of strong and like somewhat, I guess, it's examples of like classic rock bands that have updated for the 1977 sound, mm-hmm. I guess, in the same way that the dead were, were trying to do. Yeah. Uh, not as successfully, I guess, in the studio anyway. But you have um, just a song Before I Go by Crosby, Stills, and Nash off of their CSN record from 77, which was like a huge hit. Yeah. It sold like 4 million records. Um, Fleetwood Mac, Don't Stop, which we've talked a lot about Fleetwood Mac, of course, in 77. And you have Telephone Line by uh elo yeah i think that's from new world Re- new world record i think that right yeah on. and elo probably you know transitioned better than anybody right i mean he started as jeff lynn's original idea for the project was to like continue where the beatles stopped right like right well yeah he w- he was in the move and then like the move sort of evolved into elo mm-hmm. at the beginning of the 70s and uh yeah i mean really at this time he was uh on a real hot streak i think uh i'm trying to remember like i know like out of the blue yeah came out in 77 which is his double record yeah. and that is like an amazing album i love I it think. i mean yeah it's like 20 songs i think he wrote that like in three weeks <laughs> man. in switzerland yeah he's just by himself like just a genius it, man it's like also uh, like a pop one of the first records to be on like recorded in like uh 64 track studio i don't it may not be 64 but one of those like gaudy numbers and i mean the thing i love about elo is that they are just so over the top in every way (laughs) like it's just like let's overdub everything we can onto this we have no like uh we're we're not even pretending to be like an authentic rootsy rock band anymore and he just like incorporated the disco thing naturally so you know we'll talk a little bit more about disco dead in this episode but like there were so many rock bands that did it and it was so 
ham-handed <laughs> and cheesy and yeah ulo is just like oh yeah this is ex- this works perfectly like we were already orchestrated rock so we'll just like throw the disco beat underneath and put some strings on it and we're 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 good to go here yeah i think lynn you know just had that great combination of like you said going balls out production wise mm-hmm. but then as a songwriter the dude could just write a tune yeah. like he had the song at the core so uh, no matter how much he was laying on top of it, it still had like a great melody and like it had the hook, and he just knew how to build that stuff. So, Jeff Lynn, tipping my cap <laughs> to you. We love you here at Thirty Six from the Vault. Very much the antithesis of the Dead. I mean, yeah. you know, the Dead are nothing like ELO, but you know, we we love it all here. I guess at 36 from you the know, vault. you can uh, you can paint a pretty short path though given all the like jeff lynn's 80s with the traveling wilburys like you know you get jeff lynn to dylan to the dead so oh man like what if garcia would have ended up in the wilburys man yeah i could see it i don't know if that would (laughs) it's like at least like you know he could have laid some like pedal steel on like handle with care like deja vu style right like just pops up he's not part of the super group he's just like a guest appearance that's more jerry's style i mean i think only bob really hung out with Jerry because I don't think like George Harrison ever crossed paths with Jerry Garcia really no. I don't think not a lot Orbison. of Beatles dead stories other than the dead no. doing some really bad Beatles covers by the end I mean Petty <laughs> I could see Petty like uh, uh, you know maybe cross a pass with them later on although I know I'm reading a Tom Petty book right now and there's a song that he wrote for the album Into the Great Wide Open called Built to Last. Oh, yeah. And after the album came out, he got pissed because he realized (laughs) that there was a late period Grateful Dead song called Built to Last. He didn't know that. So, you know, I mean, the the, the Petty and Heartbreakers covered Front of the Devil like in their later years. So, like, you know, they liked the dead, but like, yeah, (laughs) Tom wasn't buying, you know, Dead albums in 1989. Well, another band that got more deady as they went on. It's just kind of like, oh, it's kind of inevitable. Like, it's like, what is the phrase? Like, uh, if you live long, you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm screwing it up. <laughs> but if you're a musician, you live long enough to see yourself become a jam band. <laughs> well, no, yeah, it's the dark, it's you either uh, die hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. There it is. Thank you. That's, that's the dark night. I, I quote. I should have let the author uh, take that one. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, the, yeah. The the Batman quotes. Um, the number one album at the time of the show, of course, is "Rumors" by Fleetwood Mac. Um, this is like the all in the family of nineteen seventy seven rock albums. I feel like if we're gonna you know ever talk about like a seventy seven Dicks picks, it's very likely that this album was number one. I mean, it was. Um, I was looking at the charts. It was like number one from like late May to early July. So I think about like five, six weeks. Then there was one week where there was a Barry Manilow live record (laughs) called Live! Exclamation point. (laughs) Which really, come on, that's overselling it a little bit. I don't think like, I don't know, maybe Manilow is amazing live, but I just feel like live exclamation point is a little too much. My mother-in-law saw him a bunch. I should ask her. Yeah, she was like like a Manilow head. Oh man, yeah, get her on the show, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, and then rumors it took back the number one spot, and it was number one from the end of July through the end of November. Wow. So several months uh, that it was number one. Um, although again, like you know, we mentioned this earlier, like CSN had a big year in '77. Their their record, 
their, 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 the CSN record by Crosby, Stills, and Nash was number two, I think, for a while during this period. Yeah. And uh, that's the record like where they're on the cover in a yacht. No, right, of course. It's like a, it's an actual yacht rock record. <laughs> Literal yacht rock. Yeah, I, I can't believe that album was so big because, I mean, just the song Before I Go, is that the biggest hit from that record like southern cross isn't on that one right that's later no that that's on daylight again yeah 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 that's like the big pop hit but yeah i think that um i mean i really like that record it's definitely part of that la rock sound of uh you know 1977 um and it was definitely them becoming a soft rock band right without you know reservation at that point i just think they had enough of like a brand name probably where people were excited mm-hmm. it was like their first like band album since well, it was the first csn record since the you know the couch record from 69 right. and then you know deja vu in the middle there which was with young right um, and you had the so, like yeah, aborted mid 70s csny Oh, yeah. record that uh, I mean, I guess it came out as so far, right? Or was that just like a greatest hits thing? That's a greatest hits record. I mean, there's songs from that period that I think came out on other albums, like on Crosby and Nash records, or you know, other iterations. I mean, you know, CSNY they did that. You know, they did the Doom tour just like three years earlier, right. like where they're playing stadiums. Yeah. So I mean, those those are already like a lot of '60s nostalgia but yeah i mean that's like another kind of interesting contrast between the dead and like csn Mm -hmm. and csny because um certainly like you know as an album act you can say you know the dead weren't necessarily making like great albums in 77 but as like a live act they were like the opposite of of a nostalgia act i mean they were you know better than ever as far as some people are concerned right and not Uh, not, uh not playing a lot of the old music I mean, it, the, no. this is a show that is famous in part for one big bust out that they hadn't played yeah. since their hiatus. So it, it's another time in Dead History where they had kind of reinvented their catalog. So they were they were they were looking forward, uh, maybe for kind of the last time in Dead History. Ooh, was that was that a CSNY reference? <laughs> looking <laughs> oh, forward, yeah, a reference to a terrible late period reunion <laughs> record. Um, I thought I saw them on that no, tour. I think, yeah. Um, oh, anyway, uh, I never saw I never saw them with Y. I only uh, saw okay. CSN. It was it was kind of sad because uh, Neil was so much more popular than the rest of them that it was like a little bit uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> like people were well, yeah, I mean, so much more excited for the Neil parts of the the show than everybody else. I know like that David Brown book. I mean, again, another David Brown book that we will allude to in this uh, show, but you know, he wrote a book about CSNY and he was the same. Like there's a line in there where it was like the difference between having Neil Young in that band is like 60 grand a night versus like 600 grand a night. You know, <laughs> yeah. like they just would just way bigger venues if you have Young on board. Which is amazing because um, you would think you would be the least commercial of the four. Like that just like blows my mind. I, I'm sorry to turn this into a CSNY well, uh, curveball episode, but like Neil, but like he, if, if you took those four guys in isolation and said like, and you had to pick which one was the like you know the biggest draw, like Neil is the last one you would pick. <laughs> oh no way, man! Because like I mean, especially at that time, like Neil. I mean, the '90s were great for Neil. Well, like he yeah. had like not only great albums, but like Harvest Moon was like a pretty big hit. Yeah. I mean, those other three guys, and I love the other three dudes, but like they never did anything that was like a hit. Um, like after the '70s, yeah. really. I mean, I guess Daylight Again was a hit, 
but um yeah no i mean yeah, the I 90s mean, changed it all around of course but like you know yeah. if you were like, in 1970 down at the time of deja vu like neil was the oh, weird yeah. one he was like the ringo <laughs> like, oh yeah he, there's so many ups and downs with those guys yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty fun to talk about um the number one movie in america at this time of course and the star number three wars. album yeah star wars <laughs> at, at the you know it's commercial peak multimedia uh juggernaut of popular success I re- yeah star wars mania yeah can't be avoided and this is like what you four know, months after it came out so yeah, but I mean, I, yeah, I, I feel like that movie, especially at that time, because you know, there weren't as many movies back then. So <laughs> yeah. that, that, I'm sure that was in theaters for like a year or two, mm. you know, in some towns. Um, the the movie nerd reference that I have to make in every episode uh, to a movie that came around, around this time, Suspiria, yeah. the Dario Argento movie came out in um, August of, of 77, about a month or so before this show. I just wonder, yeah, did Jerry get into a Dario Argento? Like, did he like venture into like European horror, or was he more of like a classic, like, you know, uh, Bride of Frankenstein type fan, or like the Wolfman, like those classic black and white horror films? I think he was I'm curious, but uh, yeah. yeah, but I, I, from my own perspective, I'm so happy that you picked Suspiria to talk about as the film nerd pick because where your like uh, film nerd circle overlaps with my film nerd circle is that i i'm probably more of a horror movie nerd than anything else and yeah i love suspiria so good and if jerry had seen it somehow i'm not sure how much it played over here to be honest that seems like a movie that uh didn't really get a wide release but has built in reputation over time uh but it's extremely psychedelic like the the whole thing right. with argento and using different colors and not really ha- bothering with a plot, <laughs> just kind of making a movie that is really nice to look at and really has a great creepy mood, but doesn't really hold together if you think about it too hard. Uh, that you know, it that that seems like something that would appeal to a lot of uh, deadheads and a lot of you know people doing uh, their drug of choice in 1977. Yeah, I was gonna say like yeah, I doubt Jerry saw it in the theater, but maybe someone slipped him like a VHS in the 80s like, when he was at home. <laughs> Watching, you know, TV and doing scales between tours. Right. S- slapping some Suspiria. <laughs> that seems like a pretty fun night for Jerry. <laughs> Hopefully that happened at some point. Um, the number one TV show, Not All in the Family. No. Wow, it's Charlie's Angels. Charlie's Angels. And I looked it up Ooh. and it was a rerun even that week. So, Charlie, oh, man. this is between season one and season two of Charlie's Angels. So, I didn't realize Farrah Fawcett was only on one season. So, everybody was getting their fill of Farrah Fawcett uh, before the Farrah-less second season started a couple weeks later. Yeah, I feel like the the Farrah Fawcett poster, too, that iconic poster yeah. that is in Saturday Night Fever and in Boogie Nights. Is it? Yeah. I assume, I assume that's like a Boogie Nights, like, tip of the cap to Saturday Night Fever. Like, they show... There's like a shot of, like, the Farrah Fawcett, like, where she's in that bikini and, like, her hair is, like, you know, tons of blonde curls everywhere yeah. and just... The very picture of like, you know, peak 1977 foxiness, you know, for young men out there. Uh, that's why they watched it a rerun. It's like, hey, how many times do you get to see Charlie's Angels? You know, most people don't have VCRs yet. <laughs> There's no streaming. Right. It's like, you know, could have been good. All right. We are at the show. Going to dig into Dick's Picks 15. Yeah, we parked our here. car a mile away. We're, yes, we're, walking we're walking the last up. mile to uh, Raceway Park, which, by the way, we didn't get into it, but it sounds like a pretty junky place. <laughs> like, I was going to say, 
reading about it, yeah, it sounds like it kind of reminded me of uh, of where Woodstock '99 was, okay. which was like on this like former like military base where it's just like lots of runways. It's just like a big field, <laughs> right? And it's like hot and pretty much like the last place you want to be, like on a hot as hell summer day because yeah. there's no trees and like just sun beating off the pavement and like bouncing back up on you know sweaty shirtless maniacs on too much drugs right I'm guessing that was also some of the vibe here at english town well i did i had always assumed that it was like a proper you know speedway where they would have like a nascar race or an indy car race but it turns out it was actually a drag racing strip <laughs> which you know it's like taking it down a couple notches in terms of the classiness of your typical speedway <laughs> and well yeah because you, you just think of the name too like english town yeah. you're picturing you know butlers grassy and, fields uh, and polo and, and yeah yeah just you know yeah people sipping tea and uh watching the dead but no it's not actual english no people this sounds like it's, uh pure jersey to me like if if, exactly. if if bruce springsteen was a place he would be a drag strip <laughs> racetrack in new jersey <laughs> like yeah yeah, exactly. This is like, you know, racing in the street meets the Grateful Dead yeah. meets Darkness on the Edge of Town. of a jam band podcast i'm embarrassed to admit that i'm still pretty new to the world of cbd but sunset lake cbd is a great way to give it a test run sunset lake is a family-owned farm in vermont that started as a dairy supplier for ben and jerry's a couple years ago they got into growing hemp for cbd and they've got a whole bunch of products available in their online shop at sunsetlakecbd.com seriously i had no idea there were so many different ways to use cbd Sunset Lake has tincture and salve, gummies, CBD coffee, even flour, keef, and pre-rolls, if smoking is more your thing. Their hemp is 100% pesticide-free and organic, and everything is lab-tested so you know exactly what you're ingesting. In July, they're donating 4.2% of their online sales to the Drug Policy Alliance, a pretty good cause. So far, I've tried the gummies and found them very mellow after long bike rides. I also gave some of their pet tincture to my sister-in-law for her super high-strung dogs, who seem to enjoy it as well. If you too want to sample some Sunset Lake CBD products, we've got a promo code, VAULT15, that will give you 15% off anything in their store. Again, that's sunsetlakecbd.com, promo code VAULT15. So yeah, it, it begins with a famous introduction by John Cher, mm-hmm. which we've talked about. And for me, it was very natural to think about 
the greatest introduction, I think, on a Grateful Dead live record, which is one from the vault, the 75 show. We've talked about this before, but, you know, the Bill Graham introduction where uh, his voice sounds so cool and then they just slam perfectly into Help on the Way. Yeah. I think most people would agree that's the coolest introduction on any sort of Grateful Dead live record that there is. And this is like the nerdy underbelly of it. You have John Cher, right? I mean, John Cher's voice kind of like, he sounds like kind of a wormy guy. Yeah. He's like mispronouncing their names. Yeah, I got I got a lot of beefs with this introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, um, is that, where is John Cher from? Like what, a, what like region is he from? He's a he's a Jersey. He's guy. He's a Jersey guy. I think, okay, I think he's like Jersey born and raised. Yeah, because like this this pronunciation of Godchow, which I don't even know if I can do it. It's like Gadchow, Gadchow. It's but it, but it's very Chicago to me. It almost sounds like the like the old De Bears skits on SNL <laughs> to me, which made me think of a whole SNL skit where they were talking about the dead and talking about Jerry Garcia, you know, defeating other guitarists three hundred to zero. Oh man! Uh, but yeah, get. Donna Jean Gatchow is like. Does he say like Gatchow? Ga- like Gatchow? Gotcha? I can't even do it. And I'm like a, you know, Chicagoan born and raised. So it must not be. It sounds like Gatchow. Gatchow. Donna Jean, Donna, Donna Jean Gatchow. Yeah, it's really, like, really sharp. And vocals are very nice lady, Miss Donna Jean Gatchow. Uh, so, all right, one, what the hell's up with that? Two, one of the great things about the Bill Graham intro is that, of course, he builds up to introducing Jerry last, and then it kicks right in to help on the way, right? Yeah. Uh, John Cher introduces Jerry second out of the band. And, you know, if you if you see a picture of the band on stage, he's clearly just going down the line. Uh, right, from left that was my right. assumption. Yeah. Uh, but h- how do you not introduce Jerry last at a Grateful Dead show? Exactly. It's like uh, if it's- I had gone to a Bulls, uh, a Bulls game <laughs> and they introduced Michael Jordan second, and then like, exactly. like Bill Cartwright last. <laughs> like, no offense to it's Phil, so who actually does get the like featured spot, but it's you, you can't not you can't introduce Jerry second. That's just that's it's so funny that you use that analogy because I was going to say it's like introducing Michael Jordan second and Bill Cartwright last. <laughs> really? Like why is Bill, why is Bill Cartwright like the go to like you know like limp closer well, he was the man the in the middle bill cartwright yeah no he was uh, already he was always in there uh yeah so that that's messed up <laughs> but uh yeah he's you know the way he like singles out donna is like you know a very nice lady is also right super creepy and yeah. condescending i just got i got nothing but complaints about john Cher on this one sorry if you're listening john Cher, but uh yeah this this one was not doing it for me well and like also uh, you know, I was reading, and I think it was in the off-cited book by David Gans and Blair Jackson. This is a dream we all dreamed, a great oral history, which I've plugged many times on this podcast. But someone in there is talking about how they didn't want John Cher to do this. Mm. Like, they didn't want to be introduced. But Cher insisted on doing it because he he thought that, like, no one knew anyone else in the band besides Jerry Garcia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he was like, well, I'm going to educate these fools, right? you know, on who was in this band. And not only that, but like, uh, I'm going to put Jerry second. I'm just going to like, <laughs> sort of, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to neg him a little bit Diminish and put him, him. Yeah. and say he's not that important. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but, and I forgot my fourth complaint, which is the finest band in the land. Like what a, what a lame way to describe the Grateful Dead. <laughs> 
I didn't mind that. That's part. so corny. I, Come on, finest band right. in the well, land. What? Well, like, what would you have said? Well, how would what's you refer the, to yeah, what's the, said? What's the Sam Cutler intro? I guess it was more for the Stones um, and for uh, the Dead, yeah. but the world's greatest rock and roll band, the Rolling. Yeah. You know, he should have said the world's greatest rock and roll band, the Rolling Stones, and then the Dead come out. I think that would have been kind of funny. <laughs> that would have been like a post. That would have been like a postmodern yeah. uh, introduction. The thing is, they were um, probably on stage for like ten minutes tuning before he actually did the introduction, so that wouldn't have worked. <laughs> they just would have turned around. <laughs> so okay, so the introduction that you know we're making fun of it. I still kind of like that it's there. I actually kind of like it when bands get introduced yeah, on live albums. That's true. Yeah, so and. I appreciate it being there because it's fun to make fun of John Cher. <laughs> so, you know, I, on that level, I'm glad it's We there. got a lot of material uh, out of it. So, yeah. We did. We did. We were we were roasting John Cher, <laughs> and he deserves it. He really does deserve it. Woodstock 99 is a debacle, and he has a lot to do with it. Anyway, going into the first track, we have Promised Land. We have a Barry right. in this show. First one in a while. First one in a while. Yeah, we were spared... Uh, berries uh, in in Dick's Fix fourteen over four and a half hours of music no berry, <laughs> but we get hit with a berry right here. And you know, look, we've taken a lot of shots at at the single berry, the double berry, the triple berry on this podcast. I got to say, um, I love this version. I really, this really hit me. I thought they played this really well. There's a lot of energy to it, and um, as much as I get. Um, bored or sort of deflated when Barry songs end a Grateful Dead show. I think Promised Land is like one of the best show opening songs for them. And this is, I'm going to say, this is going to be faint praise, but this is like the best Barry of Dick's Pick so far, wow, Okay, I would say. I so I really liked it. I, I surprised myself by how much I enjoyed this Barry. Yeah. I mean, we kind of get both of the most common Grateful Dead set openers in this show, like Promised Land and Bertha for almost the entirety of the 70s sort of alternated as show openers. And, you know, it's a, this is a show with a lot of energy. I feel like there's a lot of pent up energy from not being on tour all summer. Uh, and, you know, plus you know, getting out on stage in front of 150,000 people. So, yeah, the, it, it, it's the right call to do Promised Land here, right? And it it, 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 it sounds really good. Yeah, so th- that's all you got? <laughs> what, you want me to rank the berries? <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting, I don't know, like, I, I mean... I'm, I, I feel I I haven't gone through all the all the berries that we've heard so far, <laughs> but I feel confident in calling this one the best berry I, so far. Yeah, I will endorse that opinion because I do not want to sit and make a playlist of all the Chuck Berry covers and expects that sounds- someone someone out there do that yeah. and we'll retweet it. All right, if anyone wants to do a playlist of every berry we've heard so far, yeah. we will retweet it and. I'll retweet it personally like three or four times just to make sure people see it. And I'll also text it to uh, Rob, too. So if someone wants to make a Barry right. playlist And if I lose us. a bet, I'll have to listen to the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> what, I do, what I do like about this is that they are so full of energy and so enthusiastic and excited that, like, it takes... So, all right. So Bob screws up the words, like, on the second right. verse, right? Uh, so the dad yeah. immediately, there's a lyrical flub. And I love how Bob, like, you know... It's, 
saves the verse and picks it back up and then adds his little that's right <laughs> like at the end it's like a great bob ad lib uh so that that's a great moment and then the, apparently phil was playing so hard that he broke a bass string which like right? as far as i know is a lot harder than breaking a guitar string so uh phil, yeah. phil was really hopped up and ready to go so you get they're feeling it man you get one song into the big grateful dead comeback after three years off the road and they they already need to stop and uh fix a bass string and you get a just exactly perfect <laughs> uh bob banner right off the top so it's like uh you know the dead are like you know like a sugar high toddler on this song like they just come out of the come out of the gate a little too too hot and uh need to calm it down a little yeah you know there's some uh, yeah you mentioned the just exactly perfect there's a couple just exactly perfects happening here of course that's another hearkening back to uh cornell 77 and also i mean that that i think that's like in dicks picks 10 too they dropped some perfect yeah that's when we that talked one. about it last time yeah and again, like someone out there has to research this for me and like grateful seconds if you're listening or whoever. I just I just feel like Bob read some review, some like snarky reviewer like gave them shit because they weren't polished enough some night and it just stuck in his craw and he decided to like make this joke over and over in nineteen seventy seven. I feel like it's referring to something. Right. I just wonder like what it inspired like what was inspired by this i wonder and the whole band so, seems in on it like there's a, right, there's a like reference joke. to being perfect later on too that uh is pretty funny and we'll bring up when that comes up but yeah it, or maybe, it, it was definitely an in joke by this point like some promoter or something was like hey guys maybe you should rehearse make it a little more perfect <laughs> you know and they're like all right buddy mm. like whatever dude like you have no idea what the dead's all about man but yeah we'll make it just exactly perfect I feel like there's something like that. So, you know, if someone can uncover that, I'd appreciate it. Uh, we go into the next song. Uh, to, to the surprise of no one, they play uh, <laughs> They Love Each Other second. It's almost and becoming this, like a Tennessee Judd sort of situation. <laughs> it is, although I like this song a lot more yeah, than yeah. Tennessee Judd. It's also quite a bit shorter um, than, than that one. And, you know, we are coming off of the fast version on uh dicks picks 14 which i really love and i think you liked it too but now we're kind of back in the more conventional pacing of uh of they love each other and you know i really liked it i i I do like this song i have to say i'm getting a little tired of it Mm -hmm. you know just because we've heard it a lot lately and it it seems to really arrive in this spot a lot i guess in 14 it, it arrives a little bit later on the first disc um but yeah, I know. What would you think of this version? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's quite as slowed down as the 80s versions that we've heard a couple times. So I kind of like that it has this medium speed between the fast, they love each other and the slower version, the almost like reggae one that we heard in the, right. in the Brent era. Uh, there's also like a pretty nice Keith solo. And I noticed right off the top, there's two Keith solos in the first two songs. And it's a pretty good Keith show overall. Like, Oh, yeah. I, I would say a really good Keith show. If you like Keith solos, yeah. there's some really like beautiful solos by Keith, and what jumped, especially on this first disc. Yeah, and he's also, I, I think, from pictures. So Keith has this like magical superpower where 
any pictures of the dead he is not in <laughs> like they kind of tucked him in the corner of the stage so it makes sense but the one picture of the band from this show that i saw it looks like he's playing an electric piano like i don't think they had a full grand for him like they did in you know more of the early 70s shows so I, I I really like his tone on this show, and it's picked up really well again by by Betty on the board. Uh, but yeah, he's really you know not aggressive. He's never aggressive, but he picks his spots and plays some really nice stuff. And right from the top, you can kind of hear him as a very active member of the band. Uh, and I think you know we're we're sort of at the tail end of Keith being an active member of the band. Uh, by seventy eight, right. he was already starting to fade in the background. So it's it's good to hear this this sort of late era Keith type of show. So then we go into me and my uncle, the first Bob Cowboy song of the night. And I think the only Bob Cowboy song of this album. Yeah. If I don't, yeah, there's no, uh, you know, there's no El Paso. There's none of my precious big river, which has been (laughs) the comeback track of, uh, the tour for me. I've been a big, big river fan lately. I guess it Um, depends on if you count Minglewood as a cowboy song. It's, it's, it's up for debate, but, uh, yeah, oh, it, whiskey. Yeah, I guess by having whiskey in it, 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 it <laughs> has some more whiskey. A, a I gotta whiskey. say, shout out to the person who uh, tweeted whiskey at me the other day because <laughs> I, I, I I made I made some tweet about how I was having a sip of whiskey for uh, before my birthday, and they tweeted at me whiskey, and I was like, <laughs> that made me so happy. That was like my favorite thirty six from the vault tweet new, so far. New jokes. Uh, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, whoever you know, if if anyone wants to make some bootleg Wayske, uh <laughs> stickers for us or something, that'd be awesome. Um, me and my uncle, uh, where yeah, they played this song. And this is like this is also like the first Disco Dead song of the night, right. isn't it? I mean, it's pretty disco-y. Well, uh, what I love about this version is like they start playing it, and it's sort of like the old like you know country rock arrangements. And then about 30 seconds into the track, probably Mickey remembers that, oh, hey, we do this like disco style now, don't we? And it's just like super disco for the rest of it, uh, which there's, there's not a ton of disco dead on this one. I mean, I, we, no. we talked about this in Dick's Picks 10, that that was very much like a May thing that had kind of faded out by the end of the year. But I do like them putting it in here. And it brings me back to Boogie Nights. Like I feel like the disco me and my uncle is like the uh, the Don Cheadle of the Dead catalog when <laughs> right. he was in the 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 cowboy phase at the start and when he's like oh, yeah. he's at the stereo shop grooving with the coffee mug like right uh, yeah that, that's what this me and my uncle makes me feel like it's uh he's it's, getting he's getting freaky deaky it, with it <laughs> exactly yeah so um but yeah I mean I just wonder like if Mickey. Put some disco mustard on this one, and he was like, "Oh shit, I'm 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 already tired." <laughs> it uh, could be. I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. I shouldn't have done that. I got to pace myself here, man. I'm, yeah, I'll play it for three hours, so I got to lay back here a little bit later. Um, this also has some pretty amazing patter. We get a just exactly perfect, and we get a, a like a, a take a step back. All right. It's like the uh, Bob. It's like getting a dark star and a plane in the band <laughs> in the same show. It's like uh, ultimate deadhead bingo. Yeah, could have you know, you made a note about this in the outline. I agree with you. Like, uh, someone should have broke those down into some extra tracks right. for the fans. You know, you just make "Take a Step Back" a separate track because sometimes you just want to hear Bob say "Take a Step Back." <laughs> and I feel like too, you know, back in the day when there was answering machines, you might want to you, you might have wanted to have Bob on your answering machines saying "Take a Step Back." That would have been you know, a good answering calling machine. You. Yeah, it would have been like, hey. 
like don't call me anymore take a step back <laughs> just have been good just exactly perfect would work too i guess yeah oh that's well, true i'm not picking that's up the true. phone until things are just exactly perfect so i love too like how like maniacal bob sounds when he says take a step back <laughs> right. he's like take a step back and another step back and there's always and another step there's back. always like a little bit about how the people up front are all bug-eyed <laughs> yep, <laughs> like, they're all bug-eyed yeah. <laughs> i just wonder like if the fans that were like following them from show to show like took note of like oh you didn't say bug-eyed tonight right <laughs> you know like a little asterisk bug-eyed. No bug-eyed yeah it's like oh, it was a bug-eyed it was a bug-eyed bust out tonight <laughs> pretty sweet um all right so the next song is a heavy hitter on dick's picks 15 mississippi half step uptown toodaloo the greatest Grateful Dead song of all time, yeah. of course. We always love talking about this song. The greatest Grateful Dead song ever. Uh, look, I remember like when we first talked about this song. I guess it was in our first episode, and I made my ill-considered <laughs> comments. Maybe we should have another apology corner. I'm giving a lot of notes to Brian here on our show. Like, Maybe put some piano tinkling under what I'm going to say here again. You know, like in our first episode, kind of made some comments about how I thought I, I called this a bathroom song, which was ill considered. Um, and I've, I've apologized for that. You have regrets. I, I think a couple of times. Yes. Um, and I remember, I think even then people were like, dude, you got to listen to the English Town version. Yeah. English Town version is amazing. And I got to say, it lived up to the hype. Yeah. I think this is a pretty incredible version. And, um, I know for me, like, my complaint about this song is that for me, I feel like it can be a little sleepy. Mm-hmm. And uh, this version is so fiery. I mean, we've already talked about the energy of this show, how you know, they all this pent up piss and vinegar going into this gig. But uh, the way they attack this song, and of course, the Jerry Garcia guitar solo, which is like pretty um, celebrated. But I just love the energy of it. And I just feel like that is what elevates it for me above a lot of the versions of this song that I've heard. It just like kicks ass in a way I feel like this song often doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, it made me think of 72 Bird Songs, which we talked about a few episodes ago, that sometimes there's just like a perfect alignment between a song and The Grateful Dead. (laughs) And there's like no real logical explanation for it. But 77 half steps kind of get at that same feeling for me as a 72 bird song where it just feels like everybody in the band just knows exactly what to play when they set out to play it. And it's just so like it has a lot of energy, but it's also paced in a way that's not in a rush. Right. Like you got this really long uh solo jam between sort of the 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 first part of the song and the rio grandio part at the end that just kind of goes and goes and goes and nobody is in any hurry to get out of it and it's just it's got that full band conversational uh you know vibe atmosphere that is really what the dead does better than any other band uh you know when they're at their best so yeah this half step is just like a paragon of how good this song could be uh so yeah i was thinking that too <laughs> way back in episode one when you said that it was your bathroom break that i was biting my tongue and i you know i let all the all the fans do the talking for me but yeah this this delivered on its long promised uh uh redemption arc 
<laughs> for the song and your response to it. You know, as I've dug into the history of Mississippi Half Steps and like different live renditions, that the one from Dick's Picks 25 is also very well regarded. That's later on in 77, November, November 6th, 1977. So uh, I think we might get to that one in our next tour. Um, so not on this tour, but I'm curious to hear that one as well. I've heard that one is maybe a little more sort of subtle than this one. Mm. Like this is a very sort of blustery, powerful version. And from what I've read, the Dick's Picks 25 is maybe a little more delicate and a nice contrast. So I am officially putting this song on my radar, <laughs> the Dick's Picks 25 version. I'm excited to hear it. I will say that this, uh, this track was the one I listened to the most when I was, you know, going through my Dick's Picks 15 listens for this episode. Yeah, yeah. So tip the cap to that song. Now we go into Looks Like Rain next. And this is another song that we've been hearing a lot lately. Mm-hmm. Although it's interesting to me because I we've heard different, I feel like we've gone through different like journeys with this song. And, and I've said this in other episodes and, uh, I feel like this song for me is really defined by whether or not Donna is there. And when Donna's not there, I don't get into the song as much. But when she's there, I just feel like it has a vibe to it that uh, really enhances it. And I think it does need that feminine presence to it. And this version in particular, I again, I really liked it. It just made me think like, oh, Bob and Donna should have done like a deadhead Captain and Tennille type record. <laughs> like a lady and a guy right. hanging out making some lovey-dovey kind of sexy songs together, like in the 70s, you know, like these sort of pillow talk ballads, you know? Like, I think that would have been really good, you know? (laughs) I think they had a good chemistry together as singers. I don't know how uh, Uh, Keith would have felt about that, but, you know. Well, you know, it's all platonic. I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying uh, a creative uh, uh, chemistry. Although, I, you know, what is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. 
Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Uh, I wonder if Keith and Donna like hated each other by this point. Mm. I mean, they hated each other by the end of the band. They might have already been arguing, so maybe he wouldn't have cared. Maybe it would have been like, Bob. Yeah. Please. <laughs> I don't know. But just musically speaking, um, I just think they have a nice really a nice romantic chemistry and it's you don't really think of the dead as like a romantic band necessarily. Sure. You know, like they're not making love making jams necessarily, mm-hmm. but this song uh is always a reliable vehicle for that, I think, when Donna's in the band. Yeah. She really calms down Bob on the coda of Looks Like Rain. Like he's not getting into his uh angry gesticulations against the weather that he tends to get into later on. And yeah, it's a really nice calm like subtle ending to this song uh in a set that doesn't have a lot of calm moments really (laughs) i mean this is kind of like this and the next song are your 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 slow parts and then later on you got friend of the devil to kind of cool it out too but yeah this is sort of the first place in the whole show where they take their foot off the gas pedal a little bit and it sounds really nice um i also want to point out at this point uh you know i've talked a little bit about finding photos of this show which is pretty well documented given that there were you know a hundred thousand plus people there uh we gotta talk about bob's outfit at this show i don't know if you saw any of these pictures oh yeah (laughs) yeah yeah this is an iconic uh bobby look uh and we talk about you know sort of foreshadowing later hammy bobby but like he doesn't have the short shorts on but he's got like this tie-dye tank top which I yep. I think maybe even doesn't qualify as a tank top because it's got almost like spaghetti strings, like it's almost like a it's like a halter <laughs> right. top, uh, right. and then the tight white pants, which is a great 1977 look, and uh, he's wearing like the aviator sunglasses, but almost everybody's wearing the aviators because again it's 1977 and everybody's on coke, so that's those are the glasses he wore when that was happening. But yeah, he's uh he's looking quite spiffy at this show. Yeah, and he's really pointing to the 80s because I feel like I don't think he wore like a lot of tank tops in the 70s. I think that was more of like an 80s thing, especially like late 80s. Yeah. He's like, once you get towards the end of the 80s when he has like the ponytail and he's wearing the tank top. He's got the guns out. And he's got the short got the shirt. guns out. Yeah. <laughs> he's got the yeah, he's got the he's got the legs out, he's got the dogs out. <laughs> uh he's got the, you know, uh, maybe some camel toe action every now and yeah. then. I mean, he's just, but yeah, he, 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 I think he's just feeling confident. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's 77. I'm going to, I'm going to give the lady something to look at. Yeah. This, this is show, really the dawn you know? of like sex symbol Bobby. I mean, well, I mean, it was always sex symbol Bobby, but like really, I don't know, sartorially leaning into sex symbol Bobby, I think from here on out. And yeah, because even back in May, it's like the rare bearded Bobby. Uh, which he, right. he actually looks really good in May. Like I'm, that's that's my preferred Bob Weir look. But uh, yeah, by he he's coming out strong after the summer with a whole new uh, wardrobe choice. Uh, and did, uh, it's all tight, tight jeans and shorts from here on out. Did Phil ever wear a tank top Ooh. on stage? Was there is there a Phil Lesh tank top? That would be maybe uh, like somebody's really got to dig deep for that one. That that I gotta see. 
like a fill tank top tucked in really tight to some like high-waisted jeans. Yeah, and sweatbands and yeah. I, I can't say I've ever come across a fill. Uh, I've never seen Phil's shoulders and I don't know if I ever want to. Oh man, that's that's some serious ex- exploration right there. We're talking about the dead, you know, going out there. Um, next song is, uh, it's a Dick's Picks debut and I feel like uh, it's a shame we haven't heard the song now, but I was very grateful to hear it on this record. It's Peggio. Yeah, we've talked about it a lot. Usually we in have. the context of like, I can't believe they left this Peggio off because exactly. it's such a great exactly. song. <laughs> so finally, I it know, got they... in there. Maybe Dick hated Peggio and they finally got one on after he died. I don't know. That you're right. I feel like yeah, there's a couple instances like where they didn't pick the Peggio show or like they took Peggio off. Was that Dick's Picks three? I think where there's a sugary mm-hmm. and a Peggio, yeah. and I think they took the Peggio off. Um, which uh, is a shame on that record. Although I kind of understand. It. I guess when I was listening to this version, it kind of reminded me of like the '77 Sugary. Mm-hmm. It has like a little bit of the same feel, just in terms of being like kind of a slow to mid tempo song that really allows for Jerry to play like a long, languid, beautiful guitar solo, mm-hmm. which is what you get on this Peggio and. Uh, but this song, I feel like I've heard like you know, they played in the '80s, they played in the '90s, '70s. But in any era, I always enjoy this song. I feel like Jerry would always rise to the occasion. Yeah. on Peggio. Yeah, this has grown to be one of my favorites as far as like you know your your folksy Jerry material. And I agree. Yeah, very similar vibe to Sugary. Very like melodic, flowing solo from Jerry. You know you're gonna get and yeah, it's like a maybe this is a weird show for it to appear because it is such a high energy show and it's a song that I think benefits from a little more of a laid back feel, but yeah, I'm just happy to finally have it on one of these and to be able to talk about it. Cause it, you know, it, it, it's also like a great um, example of the dead sort of reframing an old folk standard, uh, which, you know, they, 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 they call this a Garcia Hunter original, but it has, you know, a long background before they got onto it. Uh, and it even has that sort of like crossover point with uh, Direwolf where they, they, they reuse the Fenario setting. So, yeah, there's a lot of things to love about Peggio. It's sort of like a quietly quintessential dead song that, you know, doesn't get a lot of, a lot of play. So now we're going to have a classic Grateful Dead transition from a beautiful <laughs> Jerry Ballad to Bob... Just honking it up. Brawny. Brawny Bob song. Brawny. Minglewood. You got the you got the you got the new Minglewood blues. And uh you know, this song, it's interesting because I feel like you know it has its roots, I guess, like in early seventies dead. Were they playing the song in the sixties? Yeah, Minglewood well, is like one of those songs that they played from like their first show to their last show. Like and it never right. it never dropped out. They just always played so, Minglewood, yeah. So an old chestnut, but I really associated it with 77, I guess because of Cornell, in a way. That show opens with this song. Um, it just seems like they played it a lot this year, and uh, I think they actually play like pretty well yeah. this year, even though it has like it's not as disco-y as that Me and My Uncle was, but it has that veneer to it a little bit, uh, that kind of slick, maybe a little coked-out sound, you know, vibe to it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know. 
I mean, I know you really like this. Yeah, one. I actually did. Like, Minglewood is a song I can take or leave usually, but this one really jumped out at me as being like, this is probably as good as they ever played Minglewood, right? Like, and I don't really quite understand why 77 was such a great year uh, for Minglewoods because, I don't know, the nature of the song doesn't seem like it would be suited by the, like, sort of slick, disco-y, professional Grateful Dead of 1977. Uh, it was sort of garage rocky early on in the 60s, and then it sort of, you know, slowed down with the band as it went on. But for some reason, this is just a sweet spot where... It doesn't sound too, it doesn't annoy me in the way that the Minglewood did a couple episodes ago where Bob was doing stealing women's and (laughs) shouting out New York City, even though T for New York City. (laughs) But uh, he, so he hasn't quite like cheese balled it up yet. Maybe that's a thing. Uh, But it, yeah, this is like a nice, you know, tapping back into that energy they had at the start of the set uh, here after a couple slow songs really picks it back up. I love your enthusiasm for this song it, it, it reminds me of my own enthusiasm for promised land like we we, we we're kind of going in some wacky directions with this album so far i, I dig it because like we're getting excited about some unlikely songs that we probably would not get excited about normally right. but yeah you know, i think it's about it's the energy of this show it's yeah. like i'm gonna get excited about the berry like I'm as surprised as anyone else, but I, I I got into it and yeah this is a good new minglewood blues I, so i think it might have something to do too with like this recent run of dick's picks has been heavy on the very exploratory uh but also kind of sleepy shows i guess like that's part of what i like about you know dick's picks 12 or dick's picks 14 is that they're they're a little slower and they're a little more they've got a little more swing and a little more texture uh so you know jumping just four years forward to 77 it's like getting punched in the jaw. <laughs> like they are so right. much more aggressive and up uh, that it actually sounds kind of refreshing in a way that maybe I wouldn't have appreciated, you know, without that context. Yeah, I mean, and that might be a conversation we have a little bit later on in this episode, 73 versus 77, because we've we spent a lot of time in 77 this tour as well as 73. Uh, so, and... They're only four years apart, but as you've you know just alluded to, they're pretty different in terms of their vibe. Um, and I hear you, like on this disc in particular, like this is like a very enjoyable first disc. I, you know, I think we're used to talking about first discs and Dick's picks sometimes being like a little bit like okay, we're waiting for the second disc or the third disc where the real meat is. But um, this first disc is like really enjoyable. And maybe it's for that reason you just said, because it's so energetic and we, we haven't really heard a show like this for a couple albums. So I hear you. I, th- I agree with that, I think. Although it's interesting that we just talked about that and now we're going to go into Friend of the Devil. <laughs> right, yeah. Which after that. Really brings the energy of, down, yeah. <laughs> really brings the energy down. And, you know, again, this is another song that we've heard go through different iterations on different Dick's picks. This is definitely... Um, on the slower side, although it's not as slow as it's going to get in the 80s. Um, I'll say, though, that I actually really like this version, and I think it has to do with what we were saying before about Keith and how strong and how audible he is on this show. Mm-hmm. He plays a really nice piano solo uh, in this song and actually makes this, I think, a little bit longer because this is like pushing like nine minutes, mm-hmm. I think. I think it goes beyond nine minutes even, but it really gives 
Keith some space to to stretch out. And for me, like that's the highlight of this version. I think uh, just what Keith brings to it. So yeah, I, I I liked it. I I thought it was good. I mean, even though we are in kind of like a slower vibe yeah on this song from like a show flow perspective i kind of hated that they put friend of the devil here like and every time i listen through this show i'm kind of like oh really like we just we picked it back up out of the sort of energy low energy valley of looks like rain and peggy O, and then they like kill it right away with friend of the devil but by the end of the song i'm one over because <laughs> even though like I'm, I'm so I'm, I'm warming up to slow friend of the devil it wasn't always my favorite like in comparison to the studio version or the fast early versions. Uh, But yeah, I really like this one too, for the same reason, like that where we've talked about in like some of the eighties shows, like Bob would take a first solo uh, during the, the solo section. Like instead here, you get that really nice Keith solo, which really makes this a special version, I think. And yeah, it's like, uh, it wins me over. Like I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of somebody who was at this very long concert in a very hot speedway field, and I think it was a very hot show uh, by reputation. By uh, when you read most people's memories, so like having like the band come out roaring like this is probably great because you've already sat through uh, what sounds like pretty mediocre sets from the New Riders and Marshall Tucker Band. Uh, but by this point, you're probably wanting to like you know. Take a breath. Take a take a song off. Maybe go grab a beer. Sit on the grass a little bit. So, it's uh, it it was probably a better call in the moment than it seems like from home. Well, Jerry and Bob were definitely doing the back and forth here at the end of the first disc mm. because you know you go from Peggio to Minglewood to Friend of the Devil, and then we're gonna get some more Bob Boogie <laughs> after Friend of the Devil. Yeah. We're gonna pick it back up for Rob here and do some music never stop to close the first set. And this is a song that, um, much like Big River, for me, uh, I've evolved on, I feel like, in in, in recent uh, weeks and months. I mean, we haven't heard mu- uh, Music Never Stops since uh, Dick's Picks 3, so we haven't heard as much as Big River in this series. But um, I was really digging this song uh, on this album. I think like to hear this song in 77 is maybe different than hearing it later on, because... 
it really brings out the sleazy side of the dead in 77. Yeah, absolutely. That, 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 that sleazy, disco-y, like, cokey side <laughs> uh, that I think is really enjoyable. And I, 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 I get that grunginess on this version, and, and, and I like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great set closer. This kind of feels like a show where they had all their set openers and closers like in their right place right like they oh yeah they really like came back with like we we've learned that these songs work well in these roles and that's what we're gonna do so yeah music never stopped is a great way to lead in the set break it's this is kind of the peak disco dead of the show i would say uh and it gets kind of raunchy at the end which is also awesome and foreshadows like a very raunchy jam in the second set and right. raunchy isn't really what I typically associate with 77. So it's nice to hear that come out a little bit. Uh, the other thing is that like people give a really big cheer for Donna's parts in this song. And I can't tell if that's for Donna or for the fact that they, she sings like the really uh, self-referential lyrics. Like there's a band out on the highway type stuff. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to choose to believe that people were, were loving Donna at this point <laughs> and yeah man let's do it yeah yeah man yeah i yeah i i mean i look i think it's probably the self-referential thing i mean like <laughs> there's a band out on the highway is like a big applause yeah thing, yeah i think for people but we're also going to cheer for donna so yeah the the seer up there she's sitting on the stool right she's toughing it out so good for donna and then uh for the set break bob tells everybody to hang out and get friends with the bugs which I have no idea what that means, <laughs> but maybe it has well, something like, to do with being all bug-eyed. I don't know. Or maybe there's like a lot of bugs there. I mean, it's like, you know, late late summer. Makes sense. Could have been left, lots of mosquitoes out there. Uh, Bob wasn't wearing sleeves, so he might have been getting a lot of bites. <laughs> That's true. During the show, you know, so who knows? head-bangingly good time dive into the world of heavy metal with the brutally delicious podcast here we don't just talk music we welcome you into our heavy metal family join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars we go beyond the typical interviews exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal so whether you're a die-hard metalhead or just curious join our family and let the head-banging begin with the brutally delicious podcast Hi everyone, this is Steve from 36 from the Vault, and look, I know a lot of you out there are very hairy people. You're Wookiees for crying out loud. And now that you've been stuck in quarantine, you're even hairier than usual. It's time to get a nice shave. So let me tell you about a company called Harry's. If you switch to Harry's for your razor needs, you're going to save 
a ton of money. You're gonna save enough money to buy 26 cups of coffee in New York City. You're gonna save enough money to pay for six months of your Netflix subscription. Uh, so if you wanna get involved in Harry's, where's a good place to get started? Well, right now Harry's is offering a free trial set to our listeners. Uh, what you want to do is you want to go to harrys.com backslash 36FTV. Again, that's harrys.com backslash 36FTV. And you're going to get this trial set. Now, what comes in the trial set? You get the weighted ergonomic handle. You get the five-blade razor. You get the rich lathering shave gel. And, of course, you get the travel blade cover. What is the travel blade cover? I don't know, but I think you should order the set to find out. So what you want to do is, again, go to harrys.com backslash 36FTV and start shaving and saving today. Um, we, go into set, the, we go into set two and disc two. And um, as, as Rob uh, alluded to earlier, the... Set opener for set two is Bertha, one of the great set openers for the dead. One of the great Grateful Dead songs, I yeah. think. One of the great fast Grateful Dead songs. Um, yeah, because you know we have Promised Land opening the first set, Bertha opening the second set. I mean, two of the great set openers. We have not gotten one of my favorites, of course, in Dick's Picks yet. I, I'm going to whine about this again. <laughs> we have not had a Feel Like a Stranger yet, which is maybe my favorite set opener. Uh, of all time we need some uh background music for whatever you complain about feel like a stranger oh, not being do we, <laughs> do we have a do we have complaining music uh but yeah like uh I mean, yeah, you can't go wrong with Bertha leading off the second set, even though, yeah, it sounds like they did some, like, maybe extracurricular activities during set break that really gives this song an extra lift. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? You get a lot of these Bertha good lovin' pairings in the late 70s that are extremely high tempo (laughs) and extremely, let's call it exuberant, uh, and just, you know... I'll I'll leave it to people to connect the dots on why they may come roaring out a set break like this. But I mean it, it sounds great. And like having a a nice Bertha at a fast pace where you get that part at the end where Jerry, Bob, and Donna are all singing singing their hearts out. Uh yeah. I mean you ask in the notes like what is your favorite dead set opener? And I think Bertha probably is. Like I can't think of what, what else I would want to hear kick off a dead show than bertha it's just such a great song and it's the opener of uh skull and roses so i always think of it opening that record mm-hmm. uh so yeah it's just a great position yeah i would say feel like a stranger for me would be number one yeah and then bertha would probably be number two or or three or so and yeah like promised land again i think again for all the complaining we've done about you know barry all the berries and dick's picks albums uh Great set opener. So yeah, they really killed it on, on the showmanship in that regard uh, for this gig. Um, after Bertha, we get Good Lovin'. I don't know how much we need to say about Good Lovin' beyond <laughs> just the, the stage patter. Yeah. There. It's like, well, you get Bob shouting out countries, which is always nice in a Good Lovin'. Like we talked, I think, last episode about how Bob loves to just yell city names and... 
Goodlovin gives them an opportunity to shout out Russia and China and anybody else who's uh, in the news. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's again, it's up-tempo, very up-tempo. Kind of falls apart halfway through. I think you're starting to get to where Mickey's maybe feeling the painkillers are wearing off and <laughs> he's starting to feel the the broken shoulder a little bit, but they, they save it. And then, uh, yeah, we get uh, some nice some nice banter here. Yeah, and like you know, you you mentioned about how um, you know Bobby was shouting out Russia. Did that influence like Phil's accent? <laughs> what he says? Because I feel like he's doing like a is it like a Russian accent? I think so. Like n- or maybe German. Nobody knows what's uh, happening in the mind of Phil. I think, but yeah, he he does like a it, it's like what's the. Uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle bad guys. Boris and Natasha, right? That's what it Yeah. That's what it sounds like. Was Rocky and Bullwinkle already on by nineteen seventy seven? I don't I don't know. Oh yeah, that was sixties, I think. Okay. So yeah, Phil's doing like his like Russian Yakov Smirnoff version of uh the just exactly perfect patter at this point. So that's I don't know. Maybe it's culturally insensitive, but I was amused. You see, something is not perfect. You saw we must make it perfect. So it will be beautiful. We will all be beautiful together when it is perfect. Actually, is it not so? it's been made to be perfect now. Is it not written in the sky? Yeah, you know, and I'd, I'd love to hear from, again, the dead experts out there about, like, how many times has Phil busted out an accent <laughs> on stage? Yeah. Is this, like, an unprecedented... Like a one time only, or they're like, oh, he busted an accent out in, you know, seventy one, you know, at the at the at the Fillmore East, you know, like I want to know that because it it seems unprecedented to me. I I feel like maybe someone pulled him aside after the show and said, hey man, no more accents. I think you know it's it's funny. I think you know the Dead are probably one of the most well documented bands in music history <laughs> as far as like blogs and setlist sites and everything else but uh i i feel like there's a real opening for like a banter stats page somebody out there oh, should yeah. start that deadbanner.com you can have yeah, that idea exactly. for free it's just there's there's nothing about the songs it's just like yeah, yeah exactly how often did bob <laughs> tell the yellow dog story or how much did uh <laughs> How how many times did he say take a take a step back? Which is what is yeah, exactly. what's the banter where he said take a step back the most times? Yeah, I just wonder like too like did Bob ever get self referential with that where like he knew people remembered him saying take a step back so like with Dead and Co did he ever sort of <laughs> jokingly say take a step back? I mean at some point like their shows were big enough where people had seats so they weren't necessarily crowding the stage or maybe you know it was more. There's more security, yeah. so they didn't have to worry about you know people getting crushed. But it'd be funny, like if they did some you know corporate Dead and Co gig, and the uh, you know corporate overlords were like we're writing out their set list, and they're like Bob, you gotta say take a step back. He's selling uh, Jeff Bezos to take a step back. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Bezos. Bezos wants you to take. He wants you to say take a step back. <laughs> But we're all going to be sitting in, like, you know, tables and stuff. So no one's actually going to be crowding the stage. But if you could just say, take a step back, right. we'll throw another $100,000 <laughs> exactly. on the pod for all you. Right. Or has uh, John Mayer done, like, a smooth cover of Take a Step Back? <laughs> That's right. 
<laughs> oh man. All right. So after that, we go into Loser, which is another, you know, wonderful Grateful Dead song, of course. And a song that I feel like really came off well in 77. <clears throat> in our Dick's Picks 10 episode, I was pretty critical of the loser in that episode. Right. And and this is where I'm going to wear my J.K. Simmons black shirt <laughs> from Whiplash because I felt like the the tempo there was not my tempo. I right. think they played it way too fast. Because I'm was i always a big fan of the Coronel 77 version. I feel like that's like one of the great versions of Loser. And this one I think is really good. It's like a little bit faster than that one, but like not as fast as the... Um, Dick's Picks 10 version, and it really benefits, I think, from the lack of Mickey Mustard. You know, it feels like it's a little more laid back. Mickey is not at full strength, which actually makes this song come off well. So I'm unfortunately complimenting Dickie, uh, Dickie. (laughs) Unfortunately, I'm complimenting Mickey's uh, car accident for making this really good, this version. Right. Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, we haven't really got like a, a sweet spot loser, I think, up until this point. And it was one that sort of debuted on Dick's Picks a little bit late. But uh, yeah, that Dick's Picks 10 one, like people people liked it. I thought I saw a little pushback on you not liking it. Oh, there was. Yeah. Well, you threw me under the bus, too, by the way. You were like, <laughs> you know, you were like, oh, I really liked it. Yeah. But I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to say anything in the episode. Yeah. But I really liked it. And which is fine. You know, I, I, I don't need people to agree with me. But. I'm just saying you threw me under the bus there, man. So <laughs> I like to let uh, the deadheads fight my battles for me. I just kind of oh, let man. let them charge ahead. No, but uh, yeah, I was looking up like I maybe this is a naive deadhead thing for me, but I I, I didn't think of '77 as being a big loser year. Like it's something I think of as being really good early and being really good, you know, surprisingly good late, like sort of those late '80s, early '90s versions of losers where Jerry really comes to life, but. Yeah, I looked it up on the old uh, Heady version, and this is actually the number two loser of all time, as voted by the fans. Just beating What's number it. one. Uh, number one is the uh, 1990 March 24th, 1990 version, ah. uh, which is like uh, my buddy Andrew, who's sort of my my dead Sherpa. That's his favorite loser of all time, and I think one that we watched with him. Uh, when we were out in New York, but uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, I remember ap- that. After that version, number two, three, four, and five are all seventy-seven. So uh, I guess seventy-seven was loser's big year. I gotta say again, like the Cornell seventy-seven version, I think is really strong. Was that in the top five? That's number three. Yeah, right behind okay. this one. And then number yeah, four I, is I, the one you hated. Really? Yeah. Oh man, that's that's <laughs> overrated. Well, there is like a very questionable heady. Uh, pick coming up. There's a heady that, version uh, bias towards Dick's picks. Uh, yeah, the general, head, yeah, so. the, yeah, yeah, the heady version. There's a very questionable heady version <laughs> uh, favorite coming up that I'm excited to talk about. Um, after that, we have estimated profit. I don't have much to say about this. I'm. Uh, this is a song that's probably like gone in the other way for me in terms of estimation. I in terms of estimation of <laughs> estimated profit. Um, you know, it's fine. I I tend to get a little bored with this song, I gotta admit. Yeah. Um, it just goes on for a long time. Well, and, and to me it's a, more about the outro jam usually, and I do like the outro of this, especially since it leads into like my favorite Grateful Dead song of all time. Like if there yeah, so the versions of this I tend to like are the ones that kind of zone out for a while after the the song part, basically. Mm. So so 
Yeah, we, I don't know. We've talked about how like I think estimated really took off when oddly enough Brent joined the band and yeah, ad- right. and totally. added sort of a spacier sound to it, which really suited the song. Uh, this is a version where I noticed that it's almost sounded like Keith was playing organ, which you don't hear very much. Like I don't, I can't think of another example of Keith playing organ because you know when he joined the band, Pigpen was still in the band and he was on organ duties, and then. Keith pretty much stuck to piano uh, unless forced to for the rest of his run. But I think Estimated was one song where they were like, Keith, you got to play something else. Uh, So it turns out he was actually playing like a very early Moog synthesizer and playing Ah. like an organ sound on it. Like, actually, I think it's in one of those Capitol Theater videos you mentioned earlier from earlier in 77. You can see Keith Keith playing what is apparently a polymoog, according to the synth nerds. And I'm saying Moog right this time, even though it's much more fun to say Moog. I think I said Moog in a previous episode. Sorry about that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's like an organ sound, but it, it kind of sounds pretty terrible. I got to say, this is like the low point of uh, Keith's performance on this show. Uh, because you think about, you know, what a great organ sound the dead would have in the 80s with Brent. And then you have Keith playing this really like watery, thin organ through estimated profit and it kind of i think it takes away from the song more than it adds to it but this is probably building up to the point where the dead were like keith you gotta play something other than piano and he you know sort of refused (laughs) and was stubborn about it and so they were like all right we're moving on to brent uh so that's kind of what jumped out to me is what an odd fit this was to hear keith on something other than piano but yeah, it didn't really work for the the song in this version, I think. Yeah, it's like you have a couple things pointing a little bit to the 80s in this show. You have Bobby's tank top, yep. of course. And then you have, yeah, you have what Keith is doing here, or like, I guess, failing to do. And what the dead were starting to really look for. They wanted more color, yeah. basically, from their, from their keyboard player. And they weren't going to get it from Keith, but they were going to get it from our boy, Brent in a few years, and yeah, I agree. I, I I like this song a lot when Brent's on it. Yeah, and what he does with from a keyboard perspective, and then you know backing vocals as well, having a little of that Keith soul man, you know, affectation in the back. I I like hearing that. Get a little earthiness uh, in the chorus. A little exactly. You just wanted a little more beer commercial. Yeah, a little more soul, man. Right. A little more soul. This show, the beer commercial, uh, was provided by the Marshall Tucker Band. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, up, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so after that, we go into Eyes of the World. And, uh, you know, I love Eyes of the World, as I've said many times in this show. Yeah. And it, it's interesting for me because, you know, we're coming off Dick's Picks 14 and 1973 Dick's Picks. That's the year I want to hear Eyes of the World, 73, 74. It's the peak of this song. And often when the dead would play it after that period, I feel like as they went into the late seventies, into the eighties, they'd play this song too fast. Again, the JK Simmons, not my tempo issue. <laughs> and I feel like the Dick's Picks 10 version that they, that, you know, eyes of the world's on that record. And I feel like that one's too fast for me. This one, I was a little worried that it'd be too fast and it actually isn't. I actually really like this version a lot. And uh, I feel like there was some potential maybe for them to go down a bad road. But again, the 1.5 drummer dead kind of, you know, Mickey is reined back enough where it is more like just Bill is playing it, which is my preferred, I guess, approach to this song. 
Um, and then you have like this great intro mm-hmm. where they really let it just kind of go for several minutes before you know the song proper begins. Yeah, yeah, it's got a great, great segue out of Estimated Profit, which of course the, that that was like a really common pairing in '77. I think there's a lot of estimateds in the eyes. Uh, Mickey tries to disco it up, <laughs> which like uh, kind of works and kind of doesn't. I don't know. I mean, it's not. When you think about, we've talked so much about how jazzy those 73, 74 versions are and, you know, putting like a really heavy dance beat on it is going to sort of disrupt that jazziness, that swing. Uh, But yeah, I think you're right. This is a a version that I like. This is a fast eyes that I like, but maybe it's a bad influence because they just kept going in that direction and it didn't work so well (laughs) for the next several years. Uh, But this... Like, besides the intro, the Jerry solo in the middle of the song is really amazing, I think. Like, it has a... Oh, yeah. There's a part where he switches from playing notes to playing just chords for about 30 seconds. Uh, That rules. Like, that's, like, one of my favorite lead guitar tricks is doing sort of the rhythm guitar lead. Uh, Which, I mean, you hear it a lot from Bob sort of over on the side doing the rhythm guitar move, but you get... Uh, I think kind of a rare instance of Jerry uh, switching to rhythm guitar lead in the middle of this. So that really stood out for me. And yeah, it's, it's a good version. It's not, uh, I think as good as the one from the last volume, but one that, uh, yeah, I really enjoy a lot. Samson and Delilah at the end of disc two. This is not a song that I really ever care about all that much. Um, and especially after Eyes of the World, I feel like, you know, you're going to have a letdown for me from Eyes of the World, usually, like, no matter what you play after that. But having said all that, I actually like this version. I, I, I find myself enjoying it. And I, I think, it, again, we have to go back to our common refrain for the, for Dick's picks 15, which is that there's just so much energy mm. in this show. And, um, I think when they can really attack this song, 
it just makes it more satisfying, you know, because to, to me, the, I often feel like they're an automatic pilot when they play this song. But I don't know. The energy of this version, I guess, you know, they're back after a long break. There's a little extra edge to it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and I think every other estimated into eyes in 77, maybe even in like the entire late 70s, uh, goes estimated eyes drums because they're, they're already kind of getting into sort of the formulaic set lists uh, that would, uh, you know, really pop up a lot more in the 80s dead. Uh, so perhaps because of Mickey's injuries, this is the only version that doesn't go into drums, but instead goes into Samson, which kind of works actually as an alternative to drums because it's such a busy drum song. Like I always think of right. it as like, like the, like kind of a drum showcase. Uh, so it's kind of a nice change of pace to get the, like, this is the drum segment of the show, but instead of just playing the drums, we're going to do a song over some busy drums. So, but I, it, it raises the question, like we talked about how, you know, Mickey got hurt and so they didn't tour in the summer. Uh, but it's also kind of interesting to me that like they they wouldn't even play drums uh, because Mickey was hurt. Like they're very much deferring to Mickey's injuries in this show in a way that I don't know. I wouldn't have expected given that Mickey is, you know, not one of the leaders of the band, I would say. I think he kind of grew into that role over time, but you know, we're still only a couple years into Mickey even coming back to the band uh, after he left due to his dad's, you know, various crimes. <laughs> uh, so I, I, it's, it's like they changed the whole flow of this show to accommodate Mickey. And there's an even bigger example of that coming up, but uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting that they couldn't just do like a Billy only drums since they did that so often in the sort of, you know, early to mid 70s i just feel like with the drums part that mickey really was like the leader at least of that you know i don't know if he already was maybe that happened more later on but i just i just so associate him with that and like especially when he was bringing in like all the crazy drums and like really kind of pushing it out from just like a standard sort of regular drum solo that maybe like when you know you have one drummer who's you know at full strength and then like one drummer who's hobbled the rest of the band's like eh, we don't need a drums part you know <laughs> especially like this guy who's really goes crazy during this section well, we can we can we can let it go but yeah you're right i mean yeah. it does almost sound like like a mini mini drums at the beginning of samson and delilah just because of yeah. like how busy it is at the beginning of that kind of tribal beat um and it's like oh that's all you really need and i guess maybe too i wonder like if on some level there was also that thing of like, you know, we're playing for like 100,000 people. Maybe we're not going to get quite as out there in this show because, I mean, we're, we're heading into the third disc and there is like, this is, I guess, the jammiest disc of, of Dick's Picks 15. Um, but, you know, they're not getting too weird, really, uh, in this show. And, and I just wonder if them headlining a show this big was maybe an influence on that a little bit. Like, we're going to lean more on the rock you know, then like our weirder kind of more psychedelic stuff. Yeah. I mean that I I see your point, but I also like think the dead didn't really care about that kind of thing. (laughs) I mean, they did a little bit, I think. And I think that's why we're getting all the like very common set openers and the set openers and very common set closers and the set closer slot and 
but I mean, they played drums a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, that's true. Big shows, little shows, and you know, the, they played a lot of stadium shows later on. That there was, you know, a good half hour of drums in space in the middle. Right, so, that's true. But I mean, uh, I feel like by then, maybe though, they grew into that, and they were a little less uh, confident about that at this point. I was going to say, like, yeah, I mean, by the '80s, I mean, they were playing stadiums all the time, so I think they were used to it. I feel like. This was still like a pretty uniquely big show for them, like in '77. So I don't know, maybe I'm sure there's a combination of factors why they didn't do drums. But anyway, (laughs) let's go into disc three. And for me, the most controversial song of the whole record, which is "He's Gone." Um, I looked it up on Heady version to see like where this ranked on like people's favorite versions. It's number three. For pe- for people's favorite, he's gone, and I can't actually remember what number one was, but I know number yeah. two is from Dick's Picks Thirteen, the uh, nineteen eighty one, yeah. the Bobby Seal show. Um, and the reason I looked it up was that I feel like most of this version, like, is is pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> like, and it, again, it has to do with the tempo issue. They're playing it a little bit fast, and um. I feel like it totally doesn't work, you know. And I and I listened to this several times. You know, I mentioned that Mississippi Half Step was the track I kept going back to, which is an obvious highlight of the record. But I went to this one nearly as much, just trying to like figure out if this was interesting or or actually bad. And I land on the bad <laughs> part. I I like it towards the end when they you know when they get into that sort of extended coda. You know, nothing's going to bring them back, that whole part. It, it, it actually mm-hmm. slows down and it becomes this sort of audience participation, like clap along thing. Um, but I don't know, like, what do you think? I was like texting you about this. I was like, is this good or, or <laughs> not? Because it's like, I, to me, it sounds like pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 it's definitely, a, it, it's sort of in two parts for me because the actual song until you get to the nothing's going to bring him back part is sort of a train wreck. And, you know, and even on this, you know, they cleaned it up for the sticks picks. Like we didn't talk about this earlier, but this is like one place where they edited the raw tape uh, in a pretty like, you know, this is like a throwback to the early days of dicks picks. And I don't know if this has something to do with Dick not being around anymore, uh, but they cut a good two, two and a half minutes out of the song because if you listen, if you go back and listen to like the FM recording or an odd recording on the archive, uh, Jerry screws up at one point and sings the chorus again instead of singing the bridge, and it throws the whole band off, and they sort of like fall apart for a moment, and then he sort of powers through and still sings the chorus, and everybody just follows along because it's Jerry, and you go wherever Jerry goes. But yes, they cut all that out, and it's a pretty seamless cut when you just listen to the Dick's picks, um, but. Uh, yeah, it's, it was kind of a mess. And like, even what's in there is not so good either. Cause there's like a couple parts where Jerry comes in early on the vocals. Right. There's a couple things where rhythmically it's not really holding together. You hear Bob sort of woo in the background really weirdly, which I think is like sort of Bob saying, we're not playing so hot here. <laughs> so it's really wobbly at the start. Uh, but they bring it back together and, you know, it starts winning me over with the nothing's going to bring him back part, which 
kind of is very cheesy later on in the dead. Like I, I, I find that part a little bit corny and they really draw it out a lot in the eighties and nineties. And it's sort of stagey. I think it's not very authentic, but this is one that feels a little more earned and you can hear the crowd really getting into it. Like this is, you know, pretty late at night now at this point, at the end of a very long day, a long hot day at a racetrack. Uh, and it's, you can hear the crowd clapping along and singing along. And I think like this is the point in the show where they have sort of recaptured sort of an early dead energy right? Uh, that carries over into the next song, especially, but uh, through the nothing's going to bring him back part when it's just Donna and Bob and Jerry singing and people clapping along and cheering along. Uh, and then the post, the jam right after that is really beautiful, I think. And it's short. It's like three minutes and very sparkly. Uh, but you get some really good interplay from, you know, every member of the band. Again, kind of calling back to like the 72 Bird songs where it's just this like incredible six-way conversation happening uh, that is really special. So it's a weird one because, yeah, the song itself is sort of a disaster, but it uh, straightens itself out by the end, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like the bad part of it, I think, goes on for about seven or eight minutes. And then, yeah, there's the thing that you were talking about where... I feel like they pull out of this tailspin and they turn it around and that, you know, nothing's going to bring them back part and they go into that jam and then we go into not fade away. And like, we've talked about not fade away before, uh, you know, and it, it often it shows up often in this slot toward the end of the set. Sometimes like, I feel like it will kind of come after, like one of the spacier ballads, you know, the dramatic ballads. And now we're kind of, we're going to bring it back into like a more rockin' part of the show. And it ends up being like a, an extended sort of groove boogie piece that goes on for like 12 minutes that gets the crowd going, but doesn't necessarily go anywhere. All that mind blowing in terms of a jam. This one is the exception, like to that rule. Like this is like a kick ass, not fade away goes on for 20 minutes and as you said it really starts building momentum like toward the end of like i guess the he's gone like jam Mm -hmm. and then it really achieves full flower here and i think like what knocked me out about this is i i forgot for about 10 or 15 minutes that i was listening to a 77 show you know listening to this it really feels like like we're going back to Dick's Picks 4 almost, you know, like 1970, mm-hmm. like early 70, like, you know, late 60s, uh, Grateful Dead, where the intensity, not just the energy, we've talked a lot about energy here, like a big rock energy with a lot of the show. Intensity is something different. You know, that's something like where instead of going out, you're going in, you know, you're going into yourself. And... um I don't want to say this is like an evil sounding jam. I don't think it quite goes like super dark, but there is like a different feel to what they're doing here that I think is different from the rest of the show and and really different from like a lot of like 77 Dead. Again, it, yeah. it just has that like old intensity that you don't really hear from them at this point, usually.
Yeah, and I went back and I listened to like the Cornell Not Fade Away, which is sandwiched inside of the St. Stephen in that Cornell second set. And it is, you know, genteel by comparison. <laughs> like it sounds like a totally different song. It's like very polite. You know, and like so but this version is just savage right out of the gate, right? Oh, like yeah. it it doesn't even really stick to not fade away. Like it takes nine minutes to get to the vocals. It drifts pretty quickly away from the Bo Diddley beat, which is, you know, sort of the hallmark of Not Fade Away, the bop 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 bop. Um they they don't really stick to that very long and it's just Jerry like with his hair on fire. For like the first nine minutes, yeah, it's it absolutely sounds like like the Good Lovin' from Volume Eight, maybe the Harper College Show, or like a Viola Lee Blues, uh, from like the late '60s in you know Dead Tapes, and yeah, it's like this just pops up out of nowhere. <laughs> really, it it feels like anachronistic. It's so out of time for the dead. Uh, yeah, it it it's really great and something that I hadn't really remembered from english town the previous times i listened to it before this but it's kind of the most impressive jam in a lot of ways in this entire show i think yeah i think so i mean you know the 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 mississippi half step is um maybe the most i mean that's a long song i guess so there is a jam to that but i don't really i don't really think of it necessarily as like a jam vehicle you know it's still it's just like a really powerful kind of longer version of that song but yeah in terms of like jamming you know there's not a ton of like them explore you know doing exploratory stuff in this gig and this really stands out and it's like wow like you know (laughs) i'm kind of getting my money's worth just with this you know even though you're not going too weird elsewhere uh yeah it's just really powerful and again yeah just the intensity it's like wow they could still do this uh Mm -hmm. and 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 uh make this huge gig feel like they're at the fillmore east or harper college or like one of those more intimate type places like it felt less like a big rock show on this jam yeah it just felt like i mean you could hunker down I, it, I think you could really hear the crowd getting like sweaty and into it too right it has like that sort of like late show love light energy almost where the you can hear that the crowd is just like in the palm of the band's hand by that point right and it's getting like just like really like like sleazy <laughs> and drunken out there it's the like the peak of the party so i mean all credit to them for turning this very odd very large show which was the first show they had played in months into this building it into this very pure climax i think is a really cool aspect of that and something that you don't get from the cornell show i think or a lot of the may 77 shows right and i'll say too that these songs in tandem, the He's Gone, going into this Not Fade Away, it really shows like kind of the miracle of this band. Because again, I feel like the He's Gone starts off so like poorly. <laughs> and and they <laughs> yeah. and they build to this great peak. You know, it just shows that like uh I just feel like that's such a microcosm of like the experience of this band that even if you're dropping in to a show, you know, in a in a it undistinguished era and you're like oh there's not gonna be anything good here you still have to listen to it because they might turn the corner and you go to a place that you wouldn't expect it's like very unpredictable you know like this band uh even in the context of a show like this which is celebrated but you know they might be really bad at one point but then oh they're gonna come back and be amazing the next so, right. so don't ever shut it off 
You got to hang in. It's almost like minute to minute. It's not even show to show or song to song. Like they can be the worst band and the best band within a space of like five minutes. Right. So, and and that same dynamic kind of carries over to like the next song, which is sort of the big historic moment of the show, which is the bust out of trucking. Yeah. Uh, and they hadn't played it since 1975. And even that show was a little bit weird because it was one of these like one-off 75 shows that they did. It was the Golden Gate Park show. Uh, but really, they hadn't played it since pre-hiatus, right? Uh, and Truckin' was like, you know, already a staple Grateful Dead song, I think, in the early 70s. And they played it almost every show uh, for the first half of the 70s. Uh, but it's like they completely forgot how to play it <laughs> they, like in the two years since they had played it last. And so this version, the crowd goes wild for it, of course, because they hadn't heard trucking in three years. And even back then they knew the stats. Uh, but it is just like a like wreck of a version of the song. And they they have forgotten a lot of the things that they used to do in the early 70s with trucking. But something about how sloppy it is, you know. The he's gone just sounds like a mess, but the trucking is like a lovable mess. Yeah, right. <laughs> like it's just like a really fun, sloppy version of a song that they hadn't played in a long time. In a way, it kind of reminded me of the China Rider from Dick's Picks Ten, like which that was another yeah. one that that was a bust out. They hadn't played it since '74, and you can hear in the band the excitement of like the crowd getting excited that they're playing this and i feel like it kind of fucks them up you know it's like oh shit like people are excited we're playing this and it's also you know late in the show so they've been playing for a while and uh you know i'm sure there's some exhaustion kicking in a little bit but yeah you're right i mean this song i feel like um you know again I, i i feel like the best versions of this song or my favorite tend to be the 73 74 because you have the balance of like this song just being like a great rock song, but then they were also able to jam it out a lot and like lead into yeah. other things that were pretty cool. But um, if I'm not going to get that, I prefer this to like a overly polished trucking, you know, like where it'd be a little too professional and it'd be delivered more like just the crowd favorite. Like this feels like them kind of fucking around on stage and, and just falling apart. But, having a good time with this song so yeah it's not the most perfect version but it's a pretty endearing trucking yeah it is not just exactly perfect yeah there was even like a rumor so i guess they left the stage after samson and delilah so uh not for very long it wasn't like a set break uh but there was a rumor that they left the stage so that they could relearn trucking really fast (laughs) to play it again in like 15 minutes and then at the end of he's gone you can hear at least like half the band is trying to push he's gone into trucking uh and i'm not sure who it is that steers it instead in a not fade away but like he's gone trucking was a pretty common pairing in those 72 73 shows we've heard uh but for some reason they decide to just like wail on not fade away for 20 minutes and then go into trucking but it has this really weird intro <laughs> where they're doing like the military march. Right. And and I think it's Mickey blowing a whistle. And I can't tell if that was planned or if it was just like, we don't remember how this song starts. So we're just going <laughs> to do this really like hokey introduction. And then they're like, they don't remember how it ends either. So they just play the start of the song again, <laughs> like the big build up to the start of trucking. So it's just a really like slapdash version, but it's, you know, it's endearing and, yeah, you're right. It's like that China Rider where it's like you you feed off the crowd energy, 
even all these years later, uh, just like the excitement over hearing this beloved Grateful Dead song make a comeback. Uh, it's the brilliant move that jam bands do when they reinvent their catalog like this. It's to shelve, you know, some of their most, you know, crowd-friendly songs for a while and then bring them back. It's something that a lot of bands are, I guess, not courageous enough to do uh, because they know that, you know, if they're, if they have an audience of people that are only going to see them like once in their life, they want to make sure they hear their favorite songs. But jam bands can kind of fall back on the fact that they're playing to people who are going to see them a bunch of times and they can do this where we're not going to play trucking for three years and then bring it back and everybody's going to lose their shit. Right. Exactly. And again, it, it, uh, I mean, I feel like people that don't listen to this kind of music sometimes think that, um, you know, these bands are pretentious or, you know, they're, playing these songs that are like overly complicated or there's just they're just playing you know guitar solos forever so it's hard to grasp onto something that's just like kind of more primitive or more you know pure rock energy and i think like a song like this really speaks to like that side of the band that they could just be that sloppy rock band that uh, yeah. plays a, a fun song that has a killer groove to it and uh but you know they can be as sloppy and uh, as the replacements are the Rolling Stones, you know, and it, it really has that great vibe to it. But then they're also going to play the really pretentious, complicated song after <laughs> that, which is how we for the encore, yeah, is how we end up at Terrapin Station. Um, and you know, I feel like I've made a lot of uh, sort of unfavorable comparisons to Dick's Picks 10. Uh, I will say that. The version of Terrapin on Dick's Picks 10, I do prefer to this one just because, I mean, this is like a, like, like a, it's not a full strength Terrapin, basically. Yeah. I mean, it, it probably wasn't their smartest decision to save it for the encore. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but- the Dead's, you know, professionalism in picking set openers and closers, I guess, only goes so far. Uh, because, so, you know, ostensibly they're out here in Englishtown, New Jersey. This is pretty much like a record release party. It's like a delayed record release party, right? Because they couldn't play in the summer when the album came out. Uh, but this is their first show since the album came out. And there's not really a hit single on the album, clearly, by this point. But they have this, you know, very long epic song that they are very proud of uh that that is sort of the feature piece of the new album uh and phil even does the little like introduction uh before they play it like this is a here's a little ditty from our new album like he's introducing the hit single um but yeah they sound a little bit tired (laughs) by the time they get to terrapin and you know especially in mickey's case like the the, as the story goes they were supposed to play the full terrapin suite it would have been the only time they ever played it uh so not just like i forget what it is like the first two or three sections that they normally play live but also the subsequent sort of drum section and then there's the terrapin flyer section that they never got around to which has you know kind of like a tropical feel on the album it's got like some steel drums and stuff and then they go back into the big like jam reprise that everybody knows uh so that was the plan they were going to play that bob had this real fancy double neck guitar that he was going to play for some reason because i guess he needed a different tuning for the terrapin flyer section uh but mickey at this point was just gassed and it sounds like it was a last second last second decision 
where he said, I just don't have anything left to to play the whole thing. So let's just do like the abridged version that they normally play live. So it's kind of a missed opportunity, but at the same time, you know, if they were going to do the full Terrapin suite, maybe they should have done it uh, at the end of the first set instead of the encore of the show. Like probably not the best choice. Yeah. You just think like, Oh, if they would have ended with like music never stopped, that'd have been pretty awesome. Actually just like play that sloppy as hell truck in <laughs> yeah. and then just do like a, this a sweaty, sleazy music never stopped. That would have been a, <laughs> Good yeah. way to send people out into the 1977 New Jersey night, but yeah, you know, they they always their their reach always exceeds their grasp in the Grateful yeah. Dead, uh, and it would have been cool if it would worked. I mean, it's fine. I I mean, I love Terrapin Station, obviously, right? Um, but yeah, you know, they 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 couldn't quite go all the way with it as they wanted to, and you know, it just doesn't have as much oomph as you need, I think, to really put this song over. Uh, so that ends the album. <laughs> you know, again, I'm glad that they played that and not um, around and round. You know, so I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, um, that would have been the alternative choice, probably. Or it was a Saturday night, so they could have played one more Saturday night. So you know, this was another '77 show that we that we've that we've taken in, and you know, we've also heard a lot of '73, and I feel like those are two big years that you know we both love and that we've talked a lot about in this. Uh, in this tour, and you know, I, I made an allusion to this earlier. I mean, I really like this show. Like, I, I really like Dick's Picks Fifteen. I had a good time revisiting it. Um, I gotta say that, like, in terms of like years from the seventies, though, like, um, I don't know. I there's something about Seventy Seven Dead that to me is like not quite as exciting as like the years that happened maybe before their their hiatus. You know, mm-hmm. like that, especially like 72 to 74 dead, which um, I'm not making any controversial statements here. I mean, I think a lot of people would say that that is, uh, you know, prime era, era Grateful Dead, obviously. Um, I feel like 77, as great as it is and as powerful as they are, um, it doesn't quite reach the heights that they did, I, I guess, before that hiatus. And maybe it's having one drummer dead in the early 70s that's a big difference for me um but yeah i don't know like how are you feeling about that at this point yeah i mean it's been interesting to watch i guess i've been into the dead for 25 years now which is not really like a long amount of time compared to a lot of deadheads but i think in those 25 years i think there's been this shift away from 77 being the peak dead year to more of like people saying 73 and 74 was probably their favorite era. Uh, And I think that probably boils down to just there being more music widely available from that era than there used to be. I mean, that's part of why Cornell looms so large is that it was the tape that everybody had and and everybody loved it. So they just assumed that 1977 must all must be just the best year possible for the Grateful Dead. But I think as you add more shows and you fill in more soundboards of those shows in those respective eras, like 77 still sounds really good, of course, but it's definitely a more like polished dead and maybe even a little repetitive uh, from show to show. Whereas 73 and 74 is just more looser and more experimental. And it's kind of like, it's like the graduate degree dead. 
So like if you've listened to a lot of Grateful Dead, you start to gravitate towards that era because there's just like a lot more to dig into uh, than you get in other years of the of the band. So it's interesting because I think we're kind of, as we're going through this, you know, particular stretch of the Dick's Picks, this, you know, season of our show and of of the volumes of the series, I think you're kind of seeing that opinion change in real time. Because we've had two seventy three seventy four shows, we've had two seventy seven shows at this point, and I think anybody who's gone through this journey would prefer, you know, volumes uh, twelve and uh, fourteen to volumes ten and sixteen. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just uh, you know people's personal preference. But I think seventy three is it comes out on top. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, we, we went so crazy in this episode for the Not Fade Away, and I think why, the reason why is that it doesn't feel like 77, it feels like an earlier era, and there's, again, just that intensity that they brought to their, to that performance that, like, you don't always hear in 77 Dead, that, like, where they're, again, as you said, going in more sort of like an exploratory direction, I think 77 was more about being a rock band, you know, and they could really deliver as a rock band and, and having these big yeah. rock moments. Um, and I love that from the dead, but it's not my favorite. And uh, I, I'd have to say that like, you know, as hyped as 77 is and like as documented as it is, um, it would not be, you know, it might be like my fourth or fifth favorite year from the seventies at this point, you know, hmm. And that's saying a lot. I mean, the, the, the dead have so many great years in the seventies. So I don't really feel like that's a slight to that, uh, to that year necessarily. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We might feel differently though. Uh, like six months from now, we'll see what happens. Um, but for now, we're actually going to take a break from the dead in our next episode. As we've alluded, we're heading into curveball territory. And as you might've guessed, because we weren't very subtle about it, <laughs> We're going to be talking about Radiohead in our next episode, Sp- like specifically their performance at Bonnaroo in 2006. Um, yeah, that's right. Which is so in the same way that our fish episode was anchored on the island tour, but you know was more generally about fish and their relationship with the Grateful Dead. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about the Bonnaroo show for Radiohead, which is a pretty famous show. In Radiohead history, right? Steve? Oh yeah, very famous show, and uh, I think it'll also be opportunities to talk about Bonnaroo maybe in general a little bit, uh, and yeah, and the connections between the Grateful Dead and uh, the jam culture that followed them, how they influenced mm-hmm. that. We of course talked about that in the Fish episode, and we're even going farther afield from the Dead by talking about Radiohead. But I think it'll be a chance to really see this band's grasp uh, and their reach in music history in rock and roll. That's not just jam bands, that there are bands that on paper you might not think have a strong connection to the dead, but well, when you listen to our episode, I think you'll see <laughs> that there are some pretty significant connections there. Yeah. That's what I want to talk about is that the dead's footprints. It's so, I mean, so often people want to sort of pigeonhole them as being just sort of the, grandfathers of the jam band scene but i think it can be felt yeah especially like much much more broadly in music right right yeah like really like any kind of band 
that plays arenas or stadiums, but also has a strong experimental bent. Mm -hmm. I think you can draw a line between them and the Grateful Dead. And we're going to do that with Radiohead. So I'm excited about it. I'm excited to hear people complain about it. Uh, (laughs) Excited to hear people say that, why don't you just do a Radiohead podcast? Why are you talking about Radiohead? Nobody guessed it. We put out like some hints and uh, people had all sorts of guesses about the next curveball. And I'm proud to say that nobody actually picked Radiohead. So yeah, Yeah, I think we said something like, we, we, uh, you know, I hope you think this band's okay on your computer. And then people were like, oh, you're going to do Jerry Garcia band? Like, uh, <laughs> right. you know, Legion of Merit. Yeah, Legion of Merit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, no, we're not doing that. We're going to do Radiohead. Yeah. We're excited about it. So until then, thank you for listening to 36 from the Vault. It's always fun, Rob, going through Dick's Picks with you. And it'll be fun in our next episode talking about Radiohead. Going through Tom's Picks or yeah, whoever their <laughs> dick is. We'll figure that out by next episode. Take care, everyone. All right. See you later. Thirty Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brickman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. For a head-bangingly good time, dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the head-banging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.